יאללה לב טוב, עין טובה, מחשבה טובה והרבה הרבה שמחה. הרבה 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 שמחה, התכוננת על מקומו ועוד מעט ואין רשע. Shalom everybody and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show Broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world You're a part of it wherever you are Today's show uh, is a special one Because I get to walk back in the streets of Jerusalem And it is just such a, uh, I don't know, a feeling of, uh, of, of, of breath of fresh air of, of renewed life And that's of course the Torah portion of Lech Lecha We also have an election coming up in the United States Which is having a giant impact on the world potentially Uh, and also this week, uh, you will hear me debating uh, an influencer by the name of Hen Mazig. The Hen is really Hen, Hen Mazig. And you can check him out on Twitter, and he's a, he's a very good uh, uh, pro-Israel guy, but he's for the two-state solution and against Jews living in Judea and Samaria because he thinks he doesn't promote peace. Well, I think differently, and we're going to discuss that on the show today. So we have an awesome Torah portion and a good segment with Rav Mike. We just recorded it. It was very good uh, and an excellent uh, debate, which you'll get a lot of the, um, a lot of people have said to me that it's instructive. And I want to hear from you if indeed you think it was instructive, the debate. So write me an email, Yishai at thelandofisrael.com or Yishai, YishaiFleischer.com with a hashtag instructive if indeed it was instructive. So without delay, let's go to our Lech Lecha segment with Rav Mike Foyer, our beloved in Jerusalem. Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are, and we are physically in Yerushalayim. I'm joined here by Rav Mike Foy. Rav Mike, shalom, and welcome to the show. Oh, Yishai, it's so good to see you in the flesh. Yes, yes, in the flesh indeed, and that's, that's what we say next year in person. And today we're going to be talking about really a very fundamental Torah portion, This is the Torah portion where we meet Avram and then Abraham, same person, but different name. Guys, so nice. They had to name him twice. Uh, but the, the Torah portion's name itself, Lech Lecha, it's, it, it says so much. It's, like a, it's almost like a kind of, it's a, it's a title for the Jewish people. It's like the journey, the, the walking, the going, the going to yourself, the going to that holy land, to, to, to the promised land. Uh, I had a Lech Lecha of sorts today in that... Uh, I had to finish off some police business. Lots of fun. Uh, don't worry, I didn't kill anybody. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but you know what? The, uh, the dealing with the police today uh, led me to do something that I haven't done in a long time. One of my favorite things to do in the world, which is to walk the streets of Yerushalayim. Just got to get on the old 72 from my free bus, uh, free parking area to into town, and then and then in town walk the streets that I like to walk: King George Street and Jaffa Street, and, and the little side streets. And okay, like two thirds of the stores were closed, but one third was open, and there were not one third of the maybe maybe a third, but less than a third of of the people that usually are out there. But they're out there. And it just felt so good. I was so happy that I had to, the chance to do a little lech lecha to, to you know, c- get that feeling of walking in the land, walking especially the streets of Yerushalayim, which are by, by themselves a biblical concept. The, the streets of Yerushalayim, the streets of Yerushalayim. It's, like a, it's mentioned in the prophets. And so uh, it was just so awesome. And here then I, I came to visit you here at Pardes, also walked a little bit here on Pierre Koenig Street and just... Uh, Which is less biblical in its feel, but nonetheless prophetic in its fulfillment. Yeah, you, you might be right. It, it, you know, Talpiot, I don't know if that was envisaged, but it, but it, is, in, but it is written up and Talpiot is written up in um, 
Shai Gnon's writings. He, he writes about sure. Talpiot and the King of the Winds and all that. Any case, great to be here in Yerushalayim. So great. So, so great. So great. Uh, just just uh, such a fantastic feeling. And, and I really do want to reach out to all of our friends and listeners uh, around the globe who are not here right now. And, and like a lot of people are writing to me. They're like, this is the longest I haven't been in the land of Israel or I usually come in for this or the other, this holiday or this thing. And, and you know, they're not making it this year. That's one aspect. And then like this whole thing of walking around with these masks, everywhere masks, masks. Like, I don't know where you're living here in Israel. Mask, mask, mask. Like, like you were Shalim on the bus, masks. You better be careful too because the cops might tackle you if you don't wear it. Right, they might tackle you. That's right. Um, but like, yeah, but people want to get better and the numbers here are dropping. Yeah, thank God. The numbers, the corona numbers here are dropping. Everybody's very happy. Uh, today, there's another Lech Lecha moment that's happening. As we're speaking right now, uh, there's an event that's happening, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in Ariel University. That's right. And that event is called U.S., this is right off the U.S. Embassy in Israel website, usembassy.gov, but started up with IL, embassy. no, usembassy.gov. It says, U.S. Israel expand reach of binational foundations and establish new scientific and te- technological cooperation agreement. However, the big thing about that agreement, what it does not say in the title, is that it no longer takes into account territorial limitations, i.e., in fancy talk, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, was off limits to U.S. cooperation. As was the Golan. As the Golan Heights. And today, that has been erased. It's become normal. I wrote on my Twitter feed, nothing to see here, just normal cooperation between Jews of Judea and, and our ally, the United States. Just that simple. And so that is also a lech lecha. There's like some kind of, you know. Progress. A progress, a, a going to a place that we haven't been going for some reason. You know, a chunk of land that, that, that the United States, which is this great power of, um, a force of progress in this world. You remember who invented flight, right, guys, right? <laughs> you know, give them that credit. They're good at I that. it was God. You've seen the birds. Yeah, no, God invented, that's right. He invented flight. That's right. That's <laughs> right. By the way, the Wright brothers spent a lot of time on beaches and lakes looking at birds yep. and, f- and, and making hand motions to mimic the birds. And just imagine how much people mocked them for years and years. <laughs> they, they thought they were nutty. I mean, they probably were. You have to be nutty to be able to conceive of such a thing. I yeah. Mean, they overcame a lot to get there, and that's a great, great story. So, so there's a lecha that's, that's happening. A, by the way, that's also an Avram story in that sense. It's overcoming a lot to get to where you're going because other people can't conceive that such a thing is even possible. That's I mean, right. He stood on one side against idolatry. The whole world said, this is the way it works. And Avram said, no, I don't think so. You're all wrong. Right. And he changed the world. A, a little bit he is like Descartes or Cartesian in the sense that he's like, no, these assumptions, I'm not going to. Well, I said, I, this, I think of it as conceptual courage, which I'm sure we've spoken about before. And I put Abraham and, and Einstein, uh-huh. another famous Jew, right. in that same category. It's like, yo, matter and energy, two totally separate things. Everybody knows that. Einstein looks and says, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. And notice the math which follows, which I'm sure also preceded, pales in comparison to the conceptual boldness to be able to conceive that the way in which the world perceives reality could be wrong. Right. And, and maybe both of those people, like Einstein, one of the things that made him famous, the way he really did things was these thought experiments. He sat and just thought it through himself. Nobody kind of taught it. It wasn't in a book. He just sat calmly in that patent office in Switzerland and just thought it through. 
uh, and, and reach different conclusions. And that's basically the storyline of Avraham that's not told in the Torah and the Bible, but it's kind of the prequel, uh, which the, the movie of which was going to come out soon. And that prequel is really about this young man who, you know, the, the famous story of, of him uh, breaking all his father's idols and then putting, this is my favorite part, which is putting the stick in the big idol's hand and saying, and when his father flew into a rage, he said to him, what do you want? You know, you're the big idol. He was jealous of the food that I brought uh, to feed him. And, and the father says, uh, Terach says to him, what are you talking about? It's just an idol. It doesn't have any power. And he says, aha. Well, but give him his specific response because Avram's response is an important thing, I think, for the whole world to contemplate. Avram says back to Terach, do your ears hear what your lips are saying? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the greatest challenges I think that we all face is that we say things, we say things because we've received them from elsewhere, because we've been told that they're true, et cetera, et cetera. But how often do we actually listen to what it is that, we, that we're saying? Yep. How often do our words reflect, like you said, deep thought and introspection? And how often are we just parenting, sorry, parroting the way in which we've been told to think? That's right. I actually had a debate this week with uh, a, a pretty uh, influential influencer whose name is Hen Mazig. Sure. Um, in certain worlds, he's very well uh, known. And I had a big debate with him about, are the settlements an obstacle to peace? And uh, the, the problem with his argumentation was that it was, it, it, by his own admission, was like, there are generals who believe that this is good for security. And it was, it, it was like I, I gave him reason after reason after reason, but he had no ability to do other, anything other than, well, I rely on the, you know, these other people, what, what they've told me. Right. And, and it was just like what you're saying. It's like you're, 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 you're parroting something, but it's not making, I thought, um, from my perspective, it didn't make sense, but you could judge it for yourself. I think, actually, I'm going to include a part of it, all of it, on the show today. So stay tuned for that. Okay, back to Avram. Uh, Avram gets the famous... Um, uh, the famous call to action. Call to action. The the direct command of lech lecha. Just let's pause for a second on that word. Every time I see that word, every time I see that word, I actually see just because of its the way it looks graphically. Um, I it's a it's a lamed and a chafsofit. Lamed and a chafsofit. It's two words, but they have a little kind of stick between them that connects them. It's like two words read as one. A, a, a dash. And when I see those words, I always see the numerical value of them, which is thirty. And 20, 30 and 20, I see, or reduce it to five and five. I see the Ten Commandments. It's like five and five. I'm giving you the five and five. Here's the, you, in order for you at your stage, Avram, to, to get there, go to the land of Israel. That's your five and five. Uh, later on, your seed, your children are going to get the Torah and then come back to the land of Israel. That's going to be the bigger five and five. But like right from the get-go, I'm giving you... You're a holy man. There's a, a, a way you're going to reach that holiness. It's going to be in the land of Israel. I'm giving you the five and five to command you. Go to it. I hear an important concept in this, which is that um, Lech Lecha is deliberately open-ended. Right? Rashi brings the Midrash that God actually doesn't tell him. Lech Lecha, right? Leave everything you know. Right. And go to to the land I'll show you. And God famously doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. Mm-hmm. Rashi brings the magician and says that uh, it's in order to make it right? The, when you don't know where you're going, a surprise is exciting. Also to give him greater reward for each step of the way because, you know, it's hard to go on a long journey when you're not sure where you're headed. But in this, in what you're pointing out, I hear a very important instruction, which is that the process is its own value. That the, the the process of getting to Eretz Yisrael, of mm-hmm. learning to listen to God, was 
value unto itself. Of course, there was also a product. He was headed for Eretz Canaan, which became Eretz Yisrael. In the same way, the Ten Commandments, of course, are a value unto themselves, God. This is what God wants us to do or not do. At the same time, they're also a process. They're a relationship which God is offering, a way in which we can value the power of our actions and the preciousness of the divine relationship offered through them, as opposed to any particular outcome which they may produce. So I think there's a very important parallel which you're pointing out, because I think it's it's unfortunate that mitzvot are often conceived of commandments, often conceived of by as uh, kind of like, sort of points that I mm-hmm. score. It's interesting, uh, right, as you said that, uh, a guy who passed away this week um, just came to my mind, and I didn't even think about talking about him, but just for one second, a very famous Israeli actor named Yehuda Barkai passed yeah. away. Now, he's famous in my eyes because one of the foundational films of what Israel's all about is a film called Chagiga Bisnuka, yeah. which is... Uh, a celebration in a pool hall or party right. in a pool hall. Party in a pool it, hall. But it's yeah. a great, great movie. Fabulous movie. One scene should be skipped. Other than that, it's a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous movie and actually quite a religious in its in its message, uh, I think. Uh, the, the thing is, is that this actor was very famous, but he actually became progressively more and more religious until he became completely observant. One of the things they say about him is what you just said, Rabbi Mike, Rav Mike, which is he was always in process. He would take one commandment and do it deeper and deeper and deeper until he settled with that and then he kept going to the next one. But that was his process of tshuva and his rabbis talked about it on the air and he became this like well-known Israeli religious person. Uh, he had a big, uh, he, he did a movie for us in Hebron and other things. But Which should be pointed out that like in America, it is not a given by any means that um, people involved in media, and in particular in sort of the entertainment business, are you know attached at all to religion. In fact, a lot of it is quite antagonistic. So to to go against the grain in that sense is its own act of courage. That's right. That's right. When here in Israel, when when people from that world come become observant, it's a big deal. They're even labeled traitors sometimes. Right. And he died supposedly of COVID complications. That hurts. Uh, and uh, he was a really good man and had a, b- a big impact. That's Yehuda Barkai. Yehuda Barkai, very good man. Look him up. Okay, and, and I want to talk one more point about this process thing that helped me understand the next section, but before that, let's get to verse, uh, we're talking about Book of Genesis, Bereshit, chapter Yudbet 12, verse Gimel 3. It says, I will bless those who bless thee. You've heard of this. And those who curse you, I shall curse. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's big stuff. Yeah, that last one is one of the more enig- enigmatic statements about Abraham. And it gets repeated in his other Lech Lecha, of course, which is at the end of the Binding of Isaac that we'll discuss in full in Parsha Vaera. But that's another place where he's told to go. That's right. You know, and um, you'll be bl- they'll be blessed through you through your actions. The world will be blessed. The yeah, families of the earth will be blessed. There are there are many comments. One of the most astounding I've ever seen was, if I'm not mistaken, the the Rashbam actually says it's almost like the whole world is is grafted onto the tree of Abraham because because mm-hmm. because um, Havracha in Hebrew is grafting, right? And so, so when it says Nivachuvacha, it says basically that that Abraham's spiritual root becomes a source of life. For every nation that chooses right. to graft 
itself onto it. And I, I just think that that type of blessing is becoming more and more apparent in our world today. Absolutely, absolutely. Through the Abraham Accords, that name itself. Wow, what a name. I, yeah. I, I would give those guys a prize just for the name. Uh, and, but also I think what you just said has to be, do, do you know, I want to tell you, I was struggling to finish up to, yesterday to still finish up Noah, studying Noah, because Noah is so compact, so... Com- so, so I know, it's, such, it's like torture trying to study these Parsha right. at this time of year. It's like right. I'm whizzing like, through. Oh, yeah, the, the three-year cycle would have worked out well for these Parsha, but like, yeah. but like Noah, then you get a feeling of the families of the earth. There are families. There's a curse there. There's a curse from Adam and from and from Noah and from Ham and from Canaan. And there's like a curse in this world. And then there's something that comes into this world like Noah that blesses the earth and blesses the uh, the um, uh, the families of the earth. That's what Avram does. Anyway, back to the issue of process. The word process helps me understand a lot. He goes. Uh, uh, You're in process. He goes. He's walking through the land. There's going to be four cities mentioned throughout this Torah portion, the big ones, I call them, which is Shechem, which is today called Nablus by the Arabs, Shechem, Beit El, Hebron, and then a hint on Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Yerukodesh. They're, they're in this Torah portion. He goes to the land. Everybody that knows, anybody that knows anything knows that when you come from the north, the land of Israel, the first place that you can actually get to inside the heartland of Israel, the mountain range, is Shechem. There's a valley there called Nachal Tirza. You come down the Jordan Valley, boop, you, you swing a right up to uh, Alon Moresh Shechem through uh, the Tirza Valley, and that's the first place. That's the first place that Avram gets to. That's the first place that Yaakov is going to get to when he comes into the land of Israel from his sojourn. On his way home. On his way home, that's right. Um, and he goes, and, and the, the next place that he goes to is this very important site, most, not most, some identify it, and I feel like I want to agree that uh, this beautiful mountain, which is called Harbal Chatzor, which is not mentioned by name, but is exactly to the east of Beit El, which is the direction that the Torah points out where he went, this very tall mountain, tallest, tallest mountain in Judea and Samaria, and I think third tallest mountain in the land of Israel, third or fourth tallest mountain in the land of Israel. It, it, it actually dominates this whole region. If on a clear day, you could see it from most places. And he goes there. It was a cultic site. He goes to this Harbal Chatzor, and he makes his Mizbeach. He makes a uh, tabernacle. Oh, what's that word? Always the, why is that Altar. word? Altar. That word is like one of those words that's always uh, gets jammed out of my head. In any case, the, here we go back to process. So he's in the land of Israel. He got to Bethel. He didn't actually go to Bethel, but next to it, he was in Shechem. He was in these holy places. But suddenly there's a famine. There's a famine, and he leaves the land of Israel. God said, go to this land. He leaves the land of Israel. Some commentators say that he sinned, including the Ramban, say that he sinned in leaving the land of Israel. But through this word that you said right now, that's what came to me as I was studying this today. It's a process. God said to him, go to this land. But then there was a famine. Maybe it's not this land. Goes down to Egypt. His wife gets taken away from him. Then uh, returned, since Pharaoh gets struck by all kinds of plagues. And this is what's called foreshadowing for what's going to be later on with the children of Israel. As, as the Ramban tells, tells us, the actions that happen to the forefathers are a trailblazing for further for, for similar such um, events down the line for the children of Israel. These are sign po- signposts for for actions that are going to happen to the Jewish people in general. But my point, and here's I want to turn it back over to you, is that okay, the whole land of Egypt story is process. You, I don't know. I, maybe I have to test it. Maybe maybe God wanted me to go down there. I don't know. And then the lesson is no. 
that's not where it's going to happen for you. That's it's not the place for you. You got to come back again to the land of Israel. I mean, what I what brought up for me is the fact that um, Aliyah. It's the first exile. It, it is the first taste of exile. Although you know, um, I hesitate to call that, and I'll tell you why. I mean, Avram is the first Ole. He's the first person to come up to the land of Israel. Yitzchak is the first settler. I mean, he's the one who just stays, and his whole essence right. is strike root. Right. And he's the first one to fight for the land, etc. Yaakov is the first one to really go into exile because he was born in the land and is driven out. So, so with, with Avram, even though you are correct, and in fact, many authorities identify, like you said, Avram's descent into Egypt as the precursor of the descent of Am Yisrael into Egypt into exile. Nonetheless, what, I, what the, the process tells me is that, is that striking root in the land, to make Alian, to really leave what you know and arrive in a new place, when you're that transition generation, you're never done. You're never done. Right. And, and if you think you're done, it's a mistake because you won't really be able to hold fast. That you have to take you know, the, the attitude that Avram took, which is that, okay, I came here because God told me to. I'm going down to Egypt because on some level God told me to, meaning the famine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, If God didn't want him to go, he would have stopped him. He stopped Yitzchak from doing the same thing. Later, at least told Yaakov that it would be okay, so he shouldn't be afraid. Yaakov mm-hmm. just goes. Right. And I think it's important to accept that. I know for me, I tried twice before I succeeded in staying here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a reality of life. Wow. Um, another way to look at it completely differently, related to the Abraham Accords, is... I want you to go down there and check it out. I want you to see how the local, the local, what's the local influence? Here's the biggest power in the Middle East, Egypt. Go check it out. Go to the big city. Walk around. Get a sense of it. Talk to Pharaoh. See the people. Understand the players. Get a sense of the region. And if you think about it, Abraham is a really a regional player, right? This Parsha for sure. Right, but he's coming out of he's coming out of Mesopotamia, going to Turkey. Uh, and then coming down through the Holy Land, then down to Egypt, then back up to the Holy Land. So, and then he fights a Mesopotamian army. Fights a Mesopotamian army, goes all the way to Syria, you know, and then comes back again. So he get, he really like I want you to I want you to really get a sense of it. For me, I am so psyched. And my mom, God bless her. Yesterday we were talking about the Abraham Accords, and she's like, you know, we could drive to the UAE, and we looked it up. There's a road that goes from Israel to Jordan to Saudi Arabia, through the deep desert of Saudi Arabia, and it's like a two-day drive to get to the UAE. That's just a crazy thought. Right. I was like, oh, my God. It's just a crazy thought. We could do this. (laughs) Road trip. We could roll down to Um, the Gulf. That's a movie that needs to be made. (laughs) That is a movie that needs to be made. You're going to call it Roll Down to the Gulf. Just... Dude, we'll get you some extra gas canisters yeah. and some heavy artillery. Forget Vegas. <laughs> we're going down. No, there's no, won't need for heavy artillery. That's the I, thing. I know, I know, I We're know. going to this. No, we're going to a new zone. We're going to a new zone. Saudi Arabia is going to be a safe place to travel for the Jewish people. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched about it. Okay. We'll get to that later. We have a lot to cover. Um, there's, the next section is the uh, split between Lot uh, his, Abraham's nephew, Avram's nephew, or at this point, Avram's nephew, uh, and Avram and Lot is going to choose. There's going to be a fight between their shepherds. <sighs> they got too much joint stuff. Too, too much. Uh, too much. Um, jointly, they have too much stuff, and it's causing people to have jealousies. Maybe that's overgrazing. Overgrazing, maybe, uh, or maybe another read that I heard. I think from the Sforno that um, there is. 
something that Abraham does not really want, which is this these fighting and this tension is not good for business. What is the business? It's the business of, of inspiring people to get closer to God. This doesn't look good. And therefore Note to the Jews. Note to the Jews. Right. It doesn't it doesn't <laughs> look good when the Jews are fighting. It does not it's not a pretty sight. And so it's not just it's not a pretty sight, it's antithetical to the mission that we have, right. which is to unite the world in recognizing one God. Right. If we can't get along with each other, why would the world ever believe that there was something which united us, much less existence? This must have been a painful moment. If you think about it now, uh, you realize that there's a few splits in Avram's life. This one with Lot and another one with, with Ishmael. Right? There's this like Not to mention the one where he leaves behind his entire homeland, family, and right. everything he knows from the beginning. Right. Uh, the word in Hebrew would be biru, birur. Uh, I don't know how do you how do you want to translate that. Um, you could say clarification, or uh, I mean, but it, it, clarification in the sense of almost a sifting, right? There's a splitting off of what's desired and what's not. Speaking of sifting, I uh, listened to this uh, Torah radio station called Kol Birama. Uh huh. Sure, I know. It. Okay, love it. Sfardi Haredi Torah station. Yeah, yeah, yeah love those guys. Okay, really, they are great. There's one rabbi, he's amazing. If you ever bump into him, Tehrani. He's a mind blower. Obviously, from, from Iranian background, Persian background. Persian. In any case, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the other day, speaking of beer, they're like, this rabbi's like, you ever like need as your socks Shabbat in the morning and there's the pile of socks and you just want to pick out some socks so you just go in there, find one Tell sock, another sock? Tell me didn't say that that was Bora. He's like, he's like <laughs> can I do this in Hebrew for a second? Okay. So he says, you can't, there's no difference between that and lighting a cigarette on Shabbos because it's Borer, one of the 39 Malachot. It's Malachot, but pretty, that would constitute Borer. I'm, I'm telling you what he said. He said, there is a, there is a suggestion. And the suggestion was, you can take exactly what you need by hand and put them on your feet immediately. Uh huh. So he did not say it that way. He said, "If you're because he said you're really picking." Well, it's not ochel nefesh though. And and uh, by the way, if it's not ochel nefesh, it's a suffolk bichlal whether there's such a thing as borer. Mm-hmm. You want to get into this argument right now? Okay, I'm you're just, you're you just so here, raw nerve. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. He said, "Spill out the socks. Spread them out. Sure. S- just spill them out." Yeah. So this Shabbat, I like was like, "Oh gosh, I need some socks." And I pulled out one sock. I'm like, "Oh no!" And then I spilled out the rest. And, and, then then your wife, and then your wife gave you hell anyway. No, you know, I'm the one who gives hell about that. Anyway, doesn't matter. Anyway, so uh, so so we're learning uh, the the Ilkhot Shabbat also. If you were too, totally mystified by this conversation, please <laughs> yeah. please send hashtag what, <laughs> yeah. or ask your local Orthodox rabbi. Um, all right, so so uh, they split up, and then um, and and then Avram is going to go south. Uh, he's going to go towards Hebron, and here we meet the town of Hebron, and also his new allies in the Hebron area, uh, which is Mamre, and we'll meet the other allies down down the line as well. There's some kind of sisterhood between uh, the city of Hebron, which is going to be later the burial place of Abraham and the rest of the bi- biblical family, and the kind of town name of it is Elon- Elone Mamre. That's what's the name on Hebron. That sounds very much like Shechem on the other side of Jerusalem, on, on the north side, which is has a place called Alon Moreh. So you have Alon Moreh, Elone Mamre. These are similar, and that's going to be the, the... There's a sisterhood between these two towns. By the way, today, a lot of uh, Hebron children live in Alon Moreh, and vice versa. It's a funny thing. Um, anyway, after that is going to be a world war, 
<coughs> World War One, maybe. World War Negative um, One. That's right, World War Negative One, and that's going to be uh, the Four Kings versus the World Five Kings. Zero. Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, by the way, means the land between two rivers, right? Uh, and so, and so, there's going to be a fight, and we get a lot of description about the Dead Sea area. Uh, it's called Yamamelach. In this case, uh, it's probably a foreshadowing of how it's going to be the, the Salt Sea. It talks about the pits there, the muddiness, the way it is today. The, the upshot of the story, though, is that Lot gets captured. Lot gets captured, his, and his whole crew, his whole crew, his whole gang gets, gets captured. And they become, they become uh, surf slaves, and they, they're taken away. And at this point, Avraham, who we know so far as a type of preacher and a man of wealth and a, and a man of tents and a man of uh, grazing and a shepherd, we know all these things, but suddenly we meet Avraham the warrior. He girds his loins. He girds his loins. First girding of loins in the uh, in First the loin girding, I that's, think. Uh, yeah, biblical and, loin girding. That's right. And, and certainly first Jewish biblical loin girding. <laughs> As it were, since it's a little bit of an And we are broadcasting Jew, on, on the Land of Israel Network, which loin. is... T- it's Tloin, but you know, yeah. leave, leave the tea off for savings. We're so broadcasting on the loin. The loin, that's right. So we gird our loins here on the Land of Israel Network. Uh, I, I think that's a coincidence, but a godly one. Um, in any case, um, so, so, so he, he, he girds his loins and he, and he arms his people 318. Rashi says that 318 is actually just the numerical equation of, uh, not equation. Eliezer. Uh, 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 equivalent. Equivalent of Eliezer, you know, his servant, and they go to war. Now, Rav Soloveitchik says, and they win the war, and they liberate all the, uh, all, all the enslaved people, and Lot comes back. Everything seems good. Rav Soloveitchik says, this is when Avram becomes famous, through yep. his wars. Yep. Not through his peace and his preaching, not his Sunday morning TV show, you know, not that, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, not his mega shul or whatever it is. It's what he, what he becomes famous is actually through the victory. I mean, I would point out, I don't think it's simply the victory. I think it's both the nature of it and the small group of sort of committed warriors, et cetera, but it's also the justice of it, mm-hmm. right? In the, in the fact that he proves subsequently that this was not a matter of uh, sort of financial or power interests when he re- refuses to allow the king of Sodom to make him wealthy. He did this for one reason, that it was wrong to take Lot and his household captive. Mm-hmm. And so, so Avraham shows that that uh, love of God involves spreading the word, and like you said, and feeding the hungry, et cetera, and it also involves fighting evil. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for most people, bottom line, if you're not willing to fight evil, then you're not actually going to change the world. Right. And so let's think about Israel for a second today. Uh, high tech, uh, the, the innovation nation, sure. Great medicine, sure. Uh, clean water, great. Water technology, fabulous. Farming, good. Uh, but the real, the real thing that like opened the world's eyes was that when this nation that had been decimated in the Holocaust suddenly fought ferociously for its land and was able to clearly miraculously have victories. Yeah, you know, there's a funny, there's a specific point where there was a certain spirit that emerged. I wouldn't say, God forbid, had last gasp, but was it one of its sort of shining moments of the past, and that was the Entebbe raid. And you read a lot about how the world before 1976 and Israel's incredibly courageous and frankly miraculous rescue of its citizens the world was kowtowing to terrorists their assumption was you just got to pay them off you got to pay if they're going to hijack your planes gonna, there's nothing to be done you know etc cetera, et cetera. And, and in 1976 the world strategy toward terrorism began to change because israel said no this is wrong 
Mm-hmm. This is wrong. We don't let this happen. And showed that spirit in a way in which the world could emulate as a whole. So I think it's a very important point you're uh, making there. And frankly, to go back to the Abraham Accords again, um, I think one of the major reasons that the countries of the Gulf in particular are suddenly looking to us is because we're the only one who has been consistently willing to stand up to the evil exercise of power that the Iranians show. Right. And it's not just like we want Israel to protect us. Well, you're being very nice. You're being very, very nice. I would add also whatever internal evil exercise of power the Saudis and the Emiratis have had inside has dissipated with the realization that it ain't working. Yeah. You're not going to defeat the Jews. So if you can't beat them, join them. Then there's what you just said, which is, well, we got this other problem. And who's really our enemy? Israel? They don't seem to really be our enemy. Maybe ideal, maybe in some kind of religious world, but maybe we can get around that. Iran, they want to cut our throats. Yes. And take our land. And take our land and, and be the masters of Mecca and Medina, et cetera. And they're right across the Gulf. Oh, they're right there. They're right there. <laughs> people, if you haven't looked at a map, just look at the finger stuck in the eye of Iran, which right. is, you know, uh, Bahrain and, uh, right. and the, other, the other Gulf states. It's, uh, and, and it's like, can we have one of your submarines? Do you mind putting one of your submarines right, right, uh, right there at right the entrance? In front, yeah, the, yeah, right in front of our like, beach here so that we could be safe, you know? Now, I don't know that for sure. I'm just, that was my guess, but I don't know. So, okay. Let's keep going. Uh, we meet uh, here. We only have about 10 minutes left, so we've got to hurry up. Uh, we meet also a Malki Tzedek, which is, according to tradition, Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, and he is the king and also the high priest of Shalem. Commentators and, and the Jewish traditionists, this is Jerusalem. And, and the ear, since in Hebrew it's ir shalem. Right. Which is not such a stretch from Yerushalayim. That's right. It's an important handoff that happens there because mm-hmm. he's, the, he's the priest of the... El Elyon, the Most High God. Most um, High. Right, which we still use that name in our liturgy. But Shem, of course, as the son of Noah, represents the universal covenant. He represents the covenant from last Parsha. Avraham is going to receive the national covenant. Right. But he's going to do it in a way which has astounded the world, and to this day the world hasn't really absorbed. He, he does it in a way which shows the two do not contradict. It is not a question of the particular versus the universal. It's a question of how do you integrate the two into a family of nations, right? And so Avraham receives, Avram at this point, receives the status of the universal priest king from, Sha, from Shem, mm. but he makes then a new addition to it which is Av Hamon Goyim, right? Right, the father of many nations, mm-hmm. and so Avram, as a model, offers a way in which you can bind the world together without insisting that everyone either fragment into a bunch of individuals or homogenize into sort of one sort of global state. He offers this notion that peoplehood is a real and essential element of the world. Mm-hmm. I definitely understand what you're saying by that handoff of the Noahide aspect, the peoples of the world. And there's a mixture, as you've pointed out, we've been discussing a lot, which is a mixture, an admixture of a- Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and this uh, international uh, spiritual, borrowing a phrase from uh, Vice President Pence, forefather in faith. Forefather in faith. Nice one. Okay. Uh, now we're going to still, uh, the, the other problem that Avram's having, he's having success in wars, he's become a wealthy man, 
He's been through different trials and tribulations. He's been down to Egypt. He's fought the Mesopotamian kings. Uh, He's split off with Lot. Okay, he's gone over all these things, but one thing is still a little bit bothersome is that he does not have an heir. The only heir that he has is a financial heir, the the head of his household, the butler, chief butler, let's call him, which is Eliezer. But in any case, he is concerned. God says to him, uh, don't worry. And and he offers him uh, contracts, bonds, what do we call that? A covenant. covenant. And the covenants, the first covenant is maybe one of the most central in the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, and that's called Breed Bainab Tarim. We don't have super a lot of time to talk about it, but Breed Bainab Tarim, on the, in, in those times, in Ugaritic times, people used to make contracts by cutting an animal in two and walking between them, both of them, both the parties. One way of saying that is that we are two halves of, of one whole. Another way of saying it is if you don't fulfill a contract, that's what you're going to look like, Okay. Uh, so that, that's one way of thinking about it. But in any case, uh, God commands Avram to take kosher animals. Uh, ostensibly, we're talking about nine kosher animals. Uh, you mean non-shechted animals? You mean th- three, of three of three kinds? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the, these are the ones that are going to end up being also the ones that are used inside the temple. Yeah, they're pure. They're the pure that's what I mean by kosher. Yeah. Um, and he basically says, split them. Think about that for a second, guys. You know, Messy. Yeah, I got a cat. Tip the tail, that by the way. Me. Yeah. Tip the tail? What is that? Tip to tail. He doesn't tip, cut tip them. Tip to tail. He doesn't cut them. Nose to tail. Yeah, nose to tail. Right. We're not talking, we're not talking we're down about the like abdomen. through the tummy. No, right. no, no. Okay, right. And uh, Lamb. Messy. It's, it's quite messy and, and really, uh, I would say, gross. So, <laughs> just, um, just saying. Right. And and then he and then there's a word that appears only one other time in the Torah, which is tardema. He knocks him out, gives him uh, uh, anesthesia. Anesthesia knocks him out, puts him under a surgery. I wrote to myself a note here that says, "What was? Why did he need to put him under anesthesia?" Adam, we know why he needed to put him under anesthesia. Because he was split in half. Who? Adam. Well, he was opened up. Well, he was split in half. It's what's interesting oh, to me the parallel right, here right. is that ah, is that the sages and even Rashi claims shot is that Adam there wasn't a rib taken away from him that he was actually a dual being who was split in half in right. that moment. That's right. Which is a, and then of course there's a whole covenant that happens between he and his wife in what's called dvekut, this sort of cleaving. Um, why does God have to put him under? I, I can I can answer that question, which is that. I had to explain to my kids recently because of surgery that I went through. And then one of my sons went through that. You know, um, you know, anesthesia isn't the same as falling asleep. Right. They're like, oh, they just put you to sleep. And they're like, no, because if I put you to sleep and then they start I cutting, they yeah. started cutting up your stomach, you'd wake up. Right. Right. That there are there are layers of consciousness which can only be achieved in a deep state of letting go. Right. That that that, and this is the power of Avraham. He wasn't bound to the world as we know it. Mm-hmm. And here, even Avraham was able to step away from the world's sort of foolish sort of enchantment with idolatry. Even he had to be taken further away from the world to see the depth mm-hmm. of what was available there. That is interesting. Right? And and um, and, and, and that's what the Haglamah is. This is, this is, I would say, a, a surgery of consciousness. God brought out from within him the, recogni- the recognition that there's a story which mm-hmm. is playing itself out. And that's the power of the Brit Ben Abitarim. He tells him, here's the story story that your right. children are going to play out and it's going to be harsh it's going to be harsh that's right and so that the, that's what my note for myself is the harshness like there the splitting or the rib by adam the harshness is gullus the mm. exile that's the harshness i'm going to tell you something quite painful yep and it's going to be a little bit painful you need you need anesthesia 
and uh, then he um, uh, then then he uh, gives him the whole story, and that is the story that your children are going to be um, going to be in exile for four hundred years. They're going to be slaves to an an exile in a land not theirs. They're going to be slaves, and then after four hundred years, they're going to come out with a lot of wealth, and they'll return here. As I mention every single year, the Rashi says the return here is Kalev ben Yifuneh. That's the fourth generation that, that arrives. Uh, in any case, um, then he gets this vision of a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke going through these pieces. I've explained in the past. I say it again th- this year, which is, to me, I think he showed him the splitting of the Red Sea. It's a mini little visual a clip of what it's going to look like, and it's powerful. There is no more powerful visual event ever than the splitting of the Red Sea. And so this is what he was like, and this is what it's going to look like. And then they're going to come back to the land of Israel, and you're gonna, your children are going to inherit these 10 nations. That's 7 plus 3, including the Messianic times. And that is the covenant. Uh, from there, okay, that, so that's like the highest of the high. That's the highest moment. Uh, you know, that's like he reveals to him the whole tale. Now back to Back down to earth. Back down to earth. Still childless. Wife is in a bad mood. Okay? She's not happy. She's not a happy camper. She says, how about you take my hand, my servant here, and... Uh, and I will be built up from her. Right. I'll be built up through her. So you be with her, and she'll have a child that'll be... She'll be... You know, the child will be born on my knees, and that's like my child. Anyway, she does, he does that with Hagar, and uh, the, ser- the, the maidservant of Sarai... But she becomes, she does something bad, this Hagar. She looks down at Sarai. Oh, you're. Note to self when wife suggests to have child with other women, say no thank you. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, so, but, but first, Hagar does something bad. She starts to see Sarai as not important or, or lesser because she's unable to conceive. That upsets Sarai. Sarai starts no, but to. Notice it's important that, that for the story that lies ahead, it's important to understand the juxtaposition that's been made. Is that Sarah, in her pain, makes space for the needs of Abraham and the future of Am Yisrael, and Hagar elevates Hagar. Right. Hagar, in her pride, narrows that space and wants to exclude Sarah and assumes she must have done something wrong, which right. is why I think, ultimately, Sarah takes such active measures to drive out Hagar and her son. It's not just a sense of competition, like now that I have Yitzchak down the line, it's mine. She recognizes that a child is a reflection of the way in which they're raised. And if that's how Hagar responded in in, in the moment of her supposed victory, then that's a culture that, that simply can't be in my mm-hmm. house when I'm trying to raise Yitzchak, who's going to have to balance, remember, that the, the promise to Avraham to be a great nation and the promise of Avraham to be the father of many peoples. Right, that that type of narrowness and sort of what we call tarayin, right? The sort of like uh, jealousy. It can't. It can't be. Well, she ends up running away from Hagar. Runs away from Sarah, and the angel sees her and and kind of puts her in a place. He says to her. Uh, he says to her. Uh, Hagar, she Sarai. He says right from the get go. He says, Hagar, a handmaiden of Sarai. Where are you going? And she admits from Sarai, my 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 mistress. Uh, and she kind of, kind of backs down a little bit. He, the the angel promises her that she's going to have a different a son named Ishmael, 
or the, the, she's been, she's already pregnant. She's a pregnant girl at this time. Your son is going to be Ishmael because God heard your 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 pleas, your cries. He's going to be a wild man. I heard a different explanation, a free man as opposed to you. But then let's put it this way: the Sephardi Jewish tradition is like, no, 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 no. He's this is he is also he's a, he's a son of a Pera, Pera Adam. Is he's a yeah wild man? Wild, wild. You'll find in some English translations a wild ass of a man that like that type of thing, like like wild, like a kind of. He's not untamed. Untamed, untamed. That's right. This place that that she sees the well is called bear, or she where this all happened is at a, at the well where best things happen in the Bible, and this is called bear lechayroi. We're going to meet this place later on. This is in the south. We're going to meet this place later on because that's also a place where Yitzchak is going to be hanging out. So. Does Yitzchak come back? Is there a reprochement between Yitzchak and Ishmael? We'll deal with that. Yeah, we'll deal with that because he hasn't even been born yet. Anyway, indeed, she uh, uh, gives birth, and the child is called Ishmael. And then, uh, finally, God says to him, that "We can't skip over this, no matter how little time we have. We can't forget the great phrase: Ani El Shaddai, I am, I am the God of of fertility. Walk before me and be perfect. You now, and in order to be perfect." You have to perfect your body and put the covenant of the circumcision in your body for all your generations. And that's what, that's what Avram does. Uh, and he's going to circumcise himself and, uh, and the rest of his family. He's going to get a new name. He's going to get a hey. Hey. By the way, notice, Lech Lecha is five and five. Sar- Avram gets a hey. Sarah gets a hey, five and five. And ultimately, the act of circumcision is the embodiment of Lech Lecha, which is stamped on the flesh of Am Yisrael, mm-hmm. because it means that the human being is not born complete, that, and that what it means to be a Jew is to be a partner in the process of the unfolding of creation. And so Avraham is told to finish himself mm-hmm. in order to be Tamim, in order mm-hmm. to be whole. So we see a lot of Birur. We see a lot of Birur, separating sure. from his family, separating from Lot. Later on, we'll deal with the whole Ishmael Yitzchak question and then uh, separating part of his body from himself. That's right. That which stands between him and God. That's right. And so this is all in order to be temp- to walk perfectly in front of God. The Torah portion ends that on this very day, and Rashi will, will go to lengths to say he insists that, that, that this was at midday because everybody's scoffing at him, right, according to Rashi. It's like, dude, are you serious? You're an older gentleman. You are now going to do what? <laughs> And to where? Her, and where and, and, <laughs> and Avram will do this at midday, and I and I think that is actually very very pertinent because it's like Avram's first, he's first. Nobody else has done this, and maybe you didn't get it right. And have you ever considered that you might have heat stroke? This is a to me the heat stroke <laughs> argument. Heat stroke. I saw the look on your face. The heat stroke argument is not like like you, he not told secondary. you to do what with your body. Then you told you to do what with your son. It's hot out here, you know, and you're older, so maybe. But no, you know, Avraham is, is quite sure of the voice that he hears. Yes. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. It is. And in the end, it is also that culmination because, you know, he heard the call of Lech Lecha and he's been following that voice throughout the Parsha to the point where, where a full covenant now takes form in his flesh. And he hands on to us this notion that the task of life is really to listen and to go where we're called to go. Rev. Mike Foyer, uh, you have a class that you have to teach now, and that means actually bringing some chairs and tables outside. That's right. Because we're still in the corona period, and therefore uh, you you wanted to get out of Zoom and become re-embodied. Oh, right? gosh. You reanimated into the real z- life. The Zoomiverse has lost its charm. Th- th- that's right. The Zoomiverse, you can really cause you to Zoom out, and you are Zooming back in by, by taking your students here at Pardes Institute 
uh, outside. So I want to, we have to cut right now. I want to thank you very much. I want people to check out your other websites, which is jewishstory.co and rovmike.com. That's where they're going to find your other shows and also your spiritual counseling and other things that they could find there. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to the Partis Institute for hosting us here today and have a great class outside. Thanks so Uh, much. Here on the Shai Fleischer Show, we keep going. Uh, and I don't know at this point if I'm going to bring in somebody else or not. Uh, just, I just don't know yet for sure. So, so stay tuned. We have great stuff. One thing is for sure, we have an awesome segment, myself debating Hen Mazik, uh, an influencer, a social media influencer, and, and a great uh, speaker thinker uh, about the question of whether the settlements are an obstacle to peace. So stay tuned to that. And thank you very much to the Land of Israel Network. Thank you to Tabitha, to Moshe, and to Ben Bresky, and all of our sponsors, which I'll talk about a little bit later, uh, that make the show happen. Rav Mike, thanks again, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. All right, folks, more great stuff's on the way, so stay tuned, stay connected. Peace in the Middle East, and Shalom in the home. All right, folks, thank you to Rav Mike. That was awesome to be with him again, face-to-face, and I love this Torah portion. It was so special to discuss it with him. And I want to tell you that this show doesn't happen just by itself. There's a lot of people who make it happen. Ben Bresky, Tabitha, Moshe Herman, get it out to the netwaves. Thank you so much. Of course, the Land of Israel Network is our home for awesome Israel podcasts. And I'm so indebted to my good friends, uh, Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel, who are rock stars. And their new uh, program is called The Fellowship, which you probably have heard about. And it's a way... Uh, for you to really connect with them every Sunday live stream. Very, very uh, powerful uh, new new platform. I also want to thank the sponsors of the show. The sponsors are great organizations. Now, I just got the coupon code for Salves of Jerusalem, salvesofjerusalem.com. You stick in coupon code Yishai, and guess what? You get 10% off. And I also told them about my idea of a new salve that will make your face glow like Moses, we call it Moglo, okay? I don't know about that, but I'll tell you what. They do have excellent salves that really heal the skin with natural, organic stuff from the Bible, including cool things like myrrh. You remember You remember when uh, the, the folks at Monty Python were like, don't mind the myrrh, but you want the myrrh, so mind the myrrh, and therefore check out uh, salvesofjerusalem.com. Put in coupon code Yishai, bang 10% off, and I want to hear from you if it works for you. I want to hear about the service. I want to hear about the product. So write me an email about that. Also, Blessed by Israel. Blessed by Israel, B-U-Y, is an awesome uh, a company that, that really, it's a, it's, 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 you know, it's a company, but they do it because of it. it's a labor of love to bring you the products from the land of Israel to your home. And you put in my name, Yishai, in the coupon code, you get 12% off to get olive oil and bomba and chocolate and, and jewelry. And A, you're helping uh, Israeli merchants. And B, you're killing BDS. And C, you are being blessed by Israel by having Israel in your life. So check out blessedbyisrael.com. Uh, and and Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, is the biblical blue string. And you can't, you can't live another day without it. That's what I have to tell you. If, if you've been thinking about it, don't put it off for another second. Get yourself some biblical blue string because it's back. And that is Trelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T. Put in coupon code Yishai, bang, 5% off. Makes a big difference and you'll change your life. You'll never be the same when you wear the biblical blue string. Do we have any other uh, good friends who are part of our show? Uh, who else helps us out? Uh, let's remember now. Oh, of course. How can I forget? Hebron. Well, we have a Jewish community that protects the tomb of the fathers and mothers, and Hebron.com is where you're going to get awesome information about Hebron and what we're doing, and Hebron Fund 
Hebron.org is how to make Hebron stronger with your support, your donations. I work for Hebron. It's the greatest chut of my life, greatest merit of my life. Other than marrying Malka and living in the land of Israel and raising children, it's working for the forefathers and mothers and following their path. When you help Hebron, you are following in their path. So check that out. Last one, that's Hebron Fund on Hebron, hebronfund.org and hebron.com. And finally, our good friends at Israel Wines, Israel Wines, uh, com will get you the wine from the land of Israel that you need and just put in coupon code Yishai, boom, again, 10% off. And let me know about all of these if they're working for you. All right, now there's another organization called the Israel Advocacy Network. And there's an amazing guy named Joe Joseph. He really rocks it. He's on Facebook. He's on Twitter. He is very, very strong at what he does. He makes great videos. And recently he challenged me to debate Hen Mazig on... Uh, his network, the Israel Advocacy Network. Hen Mazik is an influencer. Uh, he uh, is really good against bad guys, but he believes in the two-state solution, also known as this two-state pollution, uh, and I don't. And so, therefore, we just hashed it out in a discussion-slash-debate, uh, which was part of the uh, uh, Israel Advocacy Network. So I want you to check it out. A lot of people have told me that it is indeed instructive, and so instructive is important, uh, and it'll teach you about how he thinks, how I think, and answers to some of the tough questions. Not all the answers, but a lot of them. So check out this next segment. It's not short, okay? It's a bit on the longer side, but it's also, most people have told me that they found it riveting, and they were just glued to it, uh, and they were interested in it. So here is my debate on the Israel Advocacy Network with Hen Mazik. My name's Joseph, I'm from the Israel Advocacy Movement, and I am super excited today to have two of my idols, role models, Zionist inspirations, um, who, while both sitting in the Zionist camp, while both sitting in the Jewish camp, have slightly differing views when it comes to Israel, uh, or certainly when it comes to the, the settlements, um, or maybe they'll have different views, maybe they'll have the same views, <laughs> we're about to find out. And um, so I've got Hen Mazig. Um, actually, what I'm going to do, I found there was a fantastic introduction. I really don't like intros. They long out the way. I just like to get straight to the, the blood sports of the actual debate itself. And I stumbled across a very um, succinct introduction to both of you. In one corner, the international spokesperson for the extremist Hebron settlers. And in the other corner a government-funded propagandist and social media influencer. Now, anybody who knows, the, the two panelists knows what absolute insanity this is. Um, both of them are incredibly accomplished Zionist speakers, um, writing for various publications, um, going on various news outlets, um, and neither are extremists, <laughs> and neither, to my knowledge, are government-funded propagandists. But I thought this was a, um, I don't know, Ben Rafe, Ben Trafe. It was um, possibly the worst introduction to the debate I could have found. So I thought <laughs> I'd, I'd use his intro rather than waiting for, like, coming up with my own. And um, what I'd like to jump straight into is, whatever you do, please head over to Twitter. Make sure that you're following Hen Mazig, Yishai Fleischer, and us, the Israel Advocacy Movement. Um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to, just for the audience, that for those that aren't familiar with either of our two speakers, what I'm going to do, I'm going to run through a very quick fire round of questions 
and ask them both to respond to, to each of these questions with a simple agree or disagree. So the first question is, there is no such thing as a Palestinian. Either of you would like to say agree or disagree? I disagree. You sure? Yeah, I also disagree. Uh, of course there's a Palestinian. Perfect. There's all kinds of Palestinians, in fact. <laughs> I guess we'll talk about that. <laughs> exactly. Jerusalem is the undivided capital of Israel. I feel good about that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I am a Zionist. It's our lives, I think. The settlements are an obstacle to peace. A solution to peace. I think it's an obstacle to peace. Perfect. And that frames the, the debate perfectly. And so what I'd like to jump <clears throat> straight into, asking either of you to go first on that final point. The settlements being an obstacle to peace. And you seem to be on polar <laughs> different, different camps to that. To that solution. So, either um, whoever would like to go first, the floor is yours. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I and I do think that um, uh, it's important to have this discussion, and even if we to disagree, to um, to at least bring up those uh, those ideas and allow this discussion um, for people that are um, outside of Israel, also people in Israel. Um, and uh, my personal belief is that uh, the settlements do arm peace, and um, it's something that not only Israelis, I mean, friends of Israel around the world. Uh, agree about it. Um, people like um, Barack Obama that said that um, on the ground they are making it impossible um, or at least very difficult to, to ever achieve peace. Um, and uh, Ariel Sharon, Israeli Prime Minister, said, you may not like the word, um, but what is happening uh, is an occupation. It is disaster for Israel and the Palestinians. He said it in 2003. Um, and I think that it's, uh, it's something that really... Uh, pushes peace away because it makes it really impossible to have a two-state solution. Um, and the only path that I think to have my, to have, for me as a Zionist that speaks out every day about my national rights and how um, my national rights is not something that is up for debate, to tell a group of people that their national rights are uh, up for debate and that we need to have a conversation about whether or not they deserve to have a country of their own um, while our, while I'm speaking all, all about how self-determination for the Jewish people is the most important thing. Um, I think that I find it very, you know, I find it hypocritical to, to be the ones that are, um, you know, that are um, arguing with anti-Zionists and, and seeing how horrible it is for people to deny our basic human rights and then do it on the other side of our, uh, of our mouth. Um, the second point that uh, uh, is that I think that besides only friends of Israel, um, Israelis think so too. Uh, I just I googled a few polls on on Israelis um, what they think about the settlements. So in 2003, um, sorry, I'll move forward. Um, Ariel University, 2011, Ariel University that is located in Ariel that is part of, I I think that the main settlement blocks. It's not what I think. It's in the Oslo Accords that the main settlement blocks uh, are going to be part of Israel. We all know that this is going to happen um, when peace will will happen, hopefully. Um, but Ariel is located in one of those blocks, and Ariel University, um, they found that 54% of Israelis support withdrawal from the West Bank for peace. Uh, in 2017, a poll by the Institute for National Security found that 49% of Israelis support pull out of the settlements outside the major blocks that I mentioned, uh, and the 10% support pulling out of all settlements. Um, at Channel 12 did a poll in July, June 2020, um, that found that 46% of Israeli public opposes annexation, only 34% uh, support it. Um, so almost half of Israel, half of Israelis um, 
um, oppose annexation. Um, and uh, they asked them also what's important for the Israeli public, and that's something that I can tell you as an Israeli, that the most important thing for us is the economy. 50% of them said that the economy is most important. 25% said that health is, more, is, is in the second one, and 17% said security. Only 3% of Israelis thought that annexation is relevant to their lives. And that's also important to remember. Uh, Manu Geva did a, poll, a polling. Manu Geva is like the Gallup in Israel, Manu Geva and Minat um, And they found that um, um, only 32% of Israelis support, uh, uh, um, support annexation if it will happen, uh, and that 41% oppose it. Uh, 26% don't know. Um, and they also asked them if they think it will help peace, and 47.9% said that it will harm peace. 47.9% of Israelis think that it will uh, it will harm peace. So I'm not here speaking only on, on my behalf, as I showed continuously. Every year, Israelis, uh, um, at least half, I mean, almost half of Israel um, uh, are opposing settlements, and another uh, 25% uh, are on the fence on it. Um, only, you know, minority uh, are um, um, are supporting this this idea, and, and, and I think it's because um, it really harms the Zionist dream. Uh, it, harms, it harms young Israelis, uh, young Israeli Jews, and, and non-Jews, uh, to think that our country can go into a place that we will uh, we will not allow other people uh, to live freely uh, or to to have their national rights or or because you know if you want a one state it will have it will have to mean that Palestinians uh, will not be equal uh, and if they won't be equal in in a one state they won't be equal or they or Jews will not be equal one part one side will not be equal um, and that's uh, that's that's my biggest fear and I think it's also pushes a lot of young Jewish Zionists away from the debate. And that's something that I would really like to point out. I think that a lot of times, and that's something that I'm seeing, um, every time young Zionist Jews criticize the settlement, immediately we're, being, we're getting a pushback, as if if you criticize the settlement movement and, and you're speaking about violence in the settlements or, or, or you're saying that you oppose them, uh, you become this anti-Zionist Jew, and you're not. I mean, uh, so many Jews are... Uh, are Zionists and, and, you know, will support Israel. I, I know all of them. I'm working with them around the world from the UK to the US. You can criticize the settlement and oppose them and still be a very strong Zionist and believe that this is the way that Israel should go. And I don't think that we should push those people away and shutting them. And the last point that I want to make before I'm uh, giving it to uh, to Shai, I think that um, the the recent peace agreement um, with um, uh, started with the United Arab Emirates and then Bahrain and then um, Sudan recently um, those peace agreements uh, have proven to us that um, with annexation, we will not have peace. Uh, we have peace in our time only because Israel agreed to not go on with the settlement, uh, with the settlement annexation. That's something that uh, United Arab Emirates uh, emphasized, all the countries that joined this peace agreement emphasized that if there would be annexation, which was what Netanyahu promised in, in the beginning, and now we saw how it changed, um, uh, if, if an accession would have continued, we would not have peace with three Arab countries, which is historic. Um, so I think, you know, I really want to see peace and I want to see peace in the Middle East. But I think that if we, um, I know that if we'll continue with the settlement and if we will talk about an accession, we'll talk about one state, uh, it will inevitably means that, mean that one group of people would be discriminated uh, against. So, um, so for me, I think that um, um, uh, peace is the most important thing. And I do think that settlements harm it. Um, and it's uh, and I'll give the floor to Ishai just with this question: Do you think that uh, this peace agreements would have happened without with with annexation? Great. Okay, Joseph, uh, I can take over. I don't hear you, Joseph. You're muted, but okay. Uh, first, 100%. first thing, it's it's great uh, to be on this platform with you guys, 
and I really respect the both of you a lot. Joseph, you're doing great videos, and Hen, you're like a, a superstar of Zionism. And and really, the truth is, is that uh, I would love to convince you, uh, Hen. Uh, can I call you Hen as opposed to Hen, or is that cool? Yeah, is please that, call me Hen. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would love to. I would love to uh, convince you. Uh, of a different position, or at least to consider, and that's what I call winning, by the way, in an argument, is just to get another person to just consider the, the other side. And I think you made your case very well. Uh, before we even go on, I just want to first say Mazal Tov. Today is a minor holiday for the Jewish people. A lot of people don't know about it. But in the year 1165, Maimonides, the Rambam, a great Jew that came from Spain and then North Africa and then came to the land of Israel for a little bit, then made the rest of his life in Egypt, and he was the great philosopher, doctor, uh, rabbi, and codifier. He came to the land of Israel in the year 1165, exactly during these months that we're in right now. And he writes a letter, which is quoted in a few different places, and he says, On the 6th of Cheshvan, I went up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And then I traveled, after that I traveled to Hebron, and on the 9th of Cheshvan, in the year 1165, I kissed the tomb of the forefathers and mothers. I saw a Jewish community there, and I, my prayers were fulfilled that I was able to go uh, and, and go to Hebron, to the tomb of the forefathers and mothers. Because if people don't know, the patriarchs, the founders of our people, Abraham and the matriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, are buried in Hebron. And the Torah, the Bible, chapter 23, lays out the whole story about how Abraham purchases a plot of land from the Hittites. And and that makes it into a two-monument for perpetuity, for eternity. And Hebron is later on going to be the capital of Judea. King David is going to rule there for seven years. And then about 2,000 years ago, King Herod, who was a weird but still a Jewish king, built an amazing monument there for the forefathers and mothers. It stands there today in perfect, it's never been uh, hurt. It's exactly the way it was, it was uh, originally created. It's been added onto by various Christian and Muslim uh, controllers, rulers of the land. Uh, but in 1165, under, under the uh, Crusaders, they were ruling the land. The Rambam Maimonides came, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, and he writes this letter, and we have it to this very day. Last year, I had my daughter's bat mitzvah, uh, at the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron, uh, exactly on this day, the 9th of Cheshvan, which is tonight. We celebrate now, From uh, I'm not going to do the math, but from 1165 to now, the, the 700 and some years that, that the Rambam came, and that's when we did the bat mitzvah. Now, for the bat mitzvah, I wanted fireworks because my mom uh, is a Russian Jew, and for her, celebrations have fireworks. So she kept pushing me for fireworks and fireworks and fireworks. And, and I, I just... Uh, I didn't know how to do it. The army wouldn't let me do it. The Jews were too expensive, everybody that I turned to. So then suddenly I'm like, wait a minute. Right behind the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs is a neighborhood of very friendly Arabs to the Jewish community. That's the Jabri neighborhood, Jabri. And I have a good friend there. He's the, the sheikh. He's, the, he's the, the mukhtar, the head of the tribe. His name is Haj Ashraf Jabri. And he's the guy that went to Bahrain. Remember that big, uh, that big uh, economic summit in Bahrain, uh, peace to prosperity. And we we basically got him to go there. We put him on the map as as a pro-Israel Palestinian uh, who really wants to move forward. Anyway, I, I reached out to him. I said, I said, Ashraf. I said, Hajj Ashraf. Hajj means that he he did uh, he went to Mecca and Medina on the Hajj. I said to him, Hajj Ashraf, can you do me a favor? I want you to fire off some fireworks for my daughter's bat mitzvah. 
He said, do you want me to buy you some fireworks? I'm like, no, 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 man. I want you to buy them and I want you to shoot them for me. You guys are great shooters of fireworks and you live right next to the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matrix. I want you to fire them over uh, the, the area that we're dancing at a certain time. He was so excited by this. He said to me, fine, you pay for the fireworks. I'll explain to you what we have to do, but you're not paying one penny more, one shekel more, because I'm going to take the cost of the, you know, making it happen upon myself. And we had the most beautiful bat mitzvah, celebrating my daughter's bat mitzvah, celebrating uh, 700 plus years of the Rambam, the Maimonides in Hebron, and my Arab friends shot the most incredible five to seven minute like display of fireworks you've ever seen and certainly ever seen in Hebron. So that's just an example of both our relating to our history, connecting with our past, living where we've always lived. We've lived in Hebron almost without stop for the last 3,000 years, except for a few times when some evil people kicked us out and, and made the town Yudenrein. Uh, other than that, we've always lived in Hebron, and we've always had relations uh, w- with our neighbors. And that's exactly what just happened last year uh, before Corona uh, at this time. So for me, uh, the, the, the word Hebron, which in Hebrew and in Arabic, in Arabic they call it Khalil, it means the same thing, which is friendship, which is connection. The Jewish people have a deep, un- unstoppable, um, uninterrupted connection to this land. The whole thing about Zionism is that we're returning to our ancestral homeland. And the places that bespeak of our ancestral homeland are places like Bethel, Bethel, Hebron, Jerusalem, uh, Shiloh, Shechem, Beit Lechem. Uh, these are the places, Bethlehem, these are the places that make up the story of the Jewish people. So if we base Zionism on our history, it didn't really happen in Tel Aviv. That was a lot of times when, the, where th- that was the places where in different times the Philistines were living. But uh, the places that are identified with Jews coming from Judea, what the Persians called Yehud Medinta, which is the state of the Jews, was always Judea. The Maccabees controlled this mountain range until they expanded some more. This was the heart of the Jewish story. We've had two commonwealths here, and now we're back. Now, what happened was is that this land was allotted to be Jewish from the get-go. It was recognized by uh, by both the San Remo Accords and the League of Nations, and, and, and certainly before that in the Balfour Declaration, as being Jewish and much more. But the heart of the Jewish people, everybody knew that Hebron, Jerusalem, is the heart of the Jewish people. Uh, what happened was is that... Uh, a place like Hebron was actually ethnically cleansed from its Jews by a horrific jihadist riot in 1929, stirred up by a dude named Haj Amin al-Husseini, uh, who was a Nazi sympathizer at the time, later became a full-fledged Nazis and helped kill off Jews in Bosnia. Uh, he was a very bad man. And he got rid of the Jews in 1929 from Hebron. In 1948, when we declared our tiny little Jewish ethnic national state, our little Jewish uh, a ho- homeland for the Jewish people, right? A, a Jewish autonomy in an Arab Middle East. Uh, we were attacked by six Arab armies. Uh, and we fought and we won our independence. But when we won our independence, we lost the heartland, including the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, including places like Shechem and Hebron and, and Bethlehem. We lost it to the Jordanians, who were a recently created British offshoot uh, when the uh, British wanted to reward their their uh, Hashemite friends to help them create a few different kingdoms in Iraq and in Jordan. The Iraqi one and the Saudi one, they lost all those kingdoms to other Arabs who kicked them out. But in, case, in, the, in the story of Jordan, they held on. 
And what they did is they ethnically cleansed Jews from places like Gush Etzion, from Jerusalem, the old city, and from uh, Hebron. They didn't allow they, they, they had already been cleansed in 29. They didn't allow any new Jews to come in. Well, that was the state of affairs, a sad, sad state of affairs that we had lost the justice uh, of our land until 1967, the Six-Day War. Uh, not only did we push back Jordan, we also pushed back Egypt from Gaza and from the Sinai. We pushed back Syria. Uh, from the Golan Heights. These these were the essential parts of our homeland. But the essential, essential, the heartland of the homeland was Judea and Samaria. And so uh, there there ensued a debate about what should we, we should do with these lands. And it was a vociferous debate of which my colleague Hen is still part of today. And I totally understand his position. Uh, but the fact is, is that today, 600,000 Jews live in Judea and Samaria. Uh, it's now almost 20 years that we've had nationalist governments uh, and all the governments of Israel have supported. Uh, So you could could talk to me about polls all day long. The greatest poll in politics is the elections. And if the governments of Israel are supporting the Jewish communities of Judea and Samaria, the heartland communities, that's that's the biggest poll of them all. And speaking of polls, uh, you named a lot of interesting Jewish polls. But just today, just today, as providential to help me defend the case, uh, Professor Khalil Shikaki, very famous guy of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, came out with figures which I've been blasting all over Twitter today, which is that only 27% of Palestinians believe in a two-state solution and only 36% of Israelis. And do you know why? Because the two-state solution has been tried in various forms and every single time it failed. Every time we pulled out of of our land, we gave the appetite to the jihad to try to take more. Uh, people already don't remember what happened in, in, the, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. They don't remember that we pulled out of Judea and Samaria and that we had to fight a war to recontrol those areas because terrorism came from those places and blew up buses in Jerusalem. I mean, when we say blow up buses, can you just for a second imagine what it is to have a charred, broken sister or, or daughter? To me, that keeps me up at night, these thoughts. And that's what was happening all over Tel Aviv and Jerusalem because the PLO and the Palestinian Authority were holding on to this land and were using the brainwashing of their population and turning them into terrorists. And and much more recently, in 2005, we remember what happened with the Gaza withdrawal. We withdrew from Gaza. We gave them the land. But what happened? Hamas took over violently. And now every day we find terror tunnels, balloons, etc., etc. We fought three wars in that land. Therefore... Without studying a lot of Rav Cook, the Israeli population uh, has become much more pro our holding on to Judea and Samaria. They realize that the creation of a two-state solution just means the creation of a terrorist state next door. It's been proven. It's been proven. And that's why Shikaki is showing you that the figures that Chen said are just inaccurate. That is not what people believe in today. And finally, I'll finish this off with, I guess, uh, you know, I believe that we have every piece, every justice, every right to live in this land. It's our land. There has never been a Palestinian state. There are maybe people who self-identify as Palestinians, as you asked in the beginning. Sure, there are. But there has never been a Palestinian state here. But if there has ever been a Palestine, it was also in, in different times of history, a Jewish Palestine. But all that, let's leave all the justice aside and just for a second focus on security, which is not my main argument. But when I was sitting in the White House in the executive office building presenting to them why we should never pull out of Hebron, I showed them this this 3D map. Okay, you can't see it because of the background. This 3D map shows the uh, mountainous range of the land of Israel, which is the heartland. And I said to them, if you want 
to create another Gaza right next to Jerusalem. Just put out, pull out of Hebron, because Hebron today, Hebron, is controlled by Hamas. Pull out of Hebron, and you will have a Gaza Strip-like entity controlling this area, and it will shoot at the rest of the country. And that was like, they just stopped talking to me about it. I'm like, it's an absurd idea to give anybody, any other nationality, any other people control over this land. And, and I'll finish with this last phrase, which is, Hen asked me directly, Hen asked me, excuse me, Hen is the right way to pronounce it, asked me directly, he said, would we have, uh, would we have uh, a peace with the UAE? Now, anybody who follows me knows that I am like Mr. Abraham Accords. I am all about you know, relations with, with the UAE and Bahrain, Sudan, etc. I'm all into it. All right. Would we have relations? I think you're reading the map a little bit backwards. What has been clearly shown by the Trump administration is that they're not going to pull out any Jews out of Judea and Samaria. The Pompeo Doctrine accepts Jewish rights in Judea and Samaria. We're not going anywhere. And Netanyahu himself has said, yeah, you know, I, I told them I'll, I'll, you know, for the sake of their lip service to the Palestinian cause, I'll tell them that we're not, you know, annexing any more land. But we just got more green lights to build 5,000 new homes in Judea and Samaria. So the facts speak for themselves. The Jewish people are back home. We're living an incredible time, and I am very proud to be living in the heartland of the Holy Land. Really, really interesting um, to hear both of you speak. Um, What I'll do, I'll open it up to both of you to respond to each other, but if possible, I'd like you to address one question that I have. Um, And one thing that came through throughout the conversation was, despite Ben Trafe's comments, you're both incredibly moderate. You see your Palestinian neighbors as Neumans, as friends, as neighbors. There's no extremism on either, either side. It's just a different, um, I'd imagine, path to peace that you both envisage. And so my question is really simple. And like you, please feel free to respond to each other's comments. But what I would like to fact you, if possible, if you could factor in your answer, what happens to the 600,000 Jewish settlers that live in the West Bank and Judea and Samaria um, in whichever... Um, pathway to peace you envisage, um, Chen. And Yishai, for you, what happens to the 2.5 to 3 million Palestinian Arabs that live in the same region in your, in your, because I think it's really important for the audience to understand what is the, 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 the biggest challenge within either um, visions. So please, no, the floor is now both of yours again. Yeah, I, I'd love to respond to some of the points that were made. I mean, uh, I, I gave polls from uh, different sources, from right wing to left wing, um, Israeli polls and, and pollsters that are uh, the most respected in Israel. And uh, I think that it's talking about the Israeli public that hasn't changed since 2011 consecutively. Um, and I just want to comment about the point of uh, terrorism. I mean, I, I, I'll try. I wrote down a few points that I want to touch on. First of all, I do know what terrorism is. I've experienced it when I was 12 years old. I was almost killed in a terror attack right by my house in Petah Tikva uh, in an ice cream shop that I was about to go into that blew up. So I, I know full well what it is to almost lose your life because of it and what it is to lose friends because of it. And I served in uh, in Hebron, as you know, and I uh, in Hebron and Ramallah and Jerusalem periphery. And I've, uh, I've had friends that I've lost uh, because of this war. And of course, I want to see, to, to see peace and I want my family to be secure. I have... Uh, I have uh, hundreds of uh, family members because we're Iraqi and Tunisians, and uh, we just bring a lot of children. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, as you said, you're not a security expert, and I'm not a security expert. Five years in the IDF doesn't give me the security as- expert, so I expertise. So I'm looking at um, 
um, Israeli generals and former generals, and there's th 304 Commanders for Israel Security. It's an organization that I encourage everyone to Google, Commanders for Israel Security. And they wrote a whole um, um, uh, paper of 400 pages uh, of them outlining why the settlements are actually harming Israel security. And those are not lower ranked officers. They are all from brigadier general and upward. So you have generals, you have former heads of Mossad and former heads of Shabak. And, uh, you know, I think that they, uh, they probably have better security expertise than the both of us together. Um, I, I also want to touch on the point of uh, uh, Jews being indigenous to Israel and, and Hebron. There's no argument here. I mean, Jews came from Hebron. We are absolutely been in Hebron, living there for, uh, for thousands of years. Um, but, uh, but peace is about compromising. And it's about understanding that um, there's realities that we have to take into, uh, into account. And, and we, you know, giving up some land for peace um, is something that, uh, that we can do. And we did it with Egypt, by the way, when we gave um, uh, two-thirds of the size of Israel. We gave the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. And we have peace agreement with them until now that we all celebrate. Um, and I think that's something that we need to bear into account. And also, as you said, uh, Joseph, like we, there's uh, there's two, uh, two, three million Palestinian civilians living in the West Bank um, that we need to take into account. And I, you spoke about Sheikh Jabari, that I know him as well, but he's by far, and you know that as well. He doesn't represent the Palestinian population. He has, um, um, he's very, in his opinions, he's very extreme. He has, uh, uh, I mean, the Palestinian Authority hates him and. Uh, they're fighting all the time because of his opinions. But his opinions, I mean, I think Sheikh Jabari, for me, is like when um, when anti-Zionists want to bring an anti-Zionist Jew and telling us, you know, oh, here's the Jew that is that is against Israel. Uh, he's great. We can work with him. He's fantastic. Of course, he's great and he's pro-Israel, but his opinions do not represent, as you said, 30% of Palestinians. Um, um, I mean, while they don't believe in two-state solution, I'm uh, sorry, that even if they don't believe in two-state solution, they don't want to to live under um, um, uh, Israel, at least from also from my experience. Um, I just want to say, and, and I want to also touch on one thing that I, I've, I've looked up, I mean, things that you, I want to really understand your agenda. And there was one thing that you said for the Atlantic in a, uh, in, in a documentary that they did about settlements. And the journalist asked you, can Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, be equal to Jews? Uh, and you responded, uh, and I'm directly quoting you, uh, no, not in my opinion. I don't deny democratic principle. I just say they have to yield. And I think that a lot of times when I hear um, se um, se settlement leaders um, um, praising Palestinians, it's only Palestinians that are willing to um, to subscribe to um, um, to your ideology, and otherwise they are just they you know they will be um, 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 dismissed and 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 called out as irrelevant. Um, and the ones that will be celebrated is the are the ones that will uh, you know that will <laughs> celebrate your. Uh, uh, our point of view. Do you think that you find it problematic? Because uh, do, you have to, do, do you think that people um, um, think that this is a way for for uh, uh, for two people to live together? And, and what do you envision as as a peaceful uh, solution and in a one when, in a one state solution? Which I understand that you're uh, you're supporting. My my family came to Israel from Iraq and Tunisia. Uh, I know exactly what it means to live uh, as a minority uh, under the control of uh, of a majority. Uh, Arab majority, Muslim majority, in, in, in respectively, um, it wasn't good for them. I don't want that. I don't want it to anyone else. And if I want to advocate for my national rights and my self determination, uh, I can't do it and 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 ignore uh, two to three million people on the other side. Okay, I mean, I think it's a you know it's a fair point, and I guess the elephant in the room uh, is the question of what to do with the Arabs that live in Judea and Samaria under a different idea than chopping up our land in half 
and helping create what is obviously going to be a terrorist state next door. That's already uh, an empirical, proven, t- tested and proven fact. So maybe we should think differently. And that's why probably the percentages, and that's what Shikaki is saying, are going down because they see it's not really happening. And let's remember also that the Palestinian Authority is corrupt. Uh, we're talking Mahmoud Abbas has known $100 million in his personal bank and flies around in a private jet, but asks for money for the poor Palestinians. We know. And if you ask, you don't even need any polls. You just go to the Palestinian street and ask him, what do you think? What do you think about the Palestinian Authority? They will just start saying the worst things. They call them, in Hebrew, they call them the mushatim, the, the, the corrupt ones, the corrupt ones. They call Ramallah the city of thieves, etc., etc. So we know what they really think about it. And when you, when you, when I, let's put it that way, when I, when I meet Arab Palestinians, and I meet them very regularly, and we, we have regular meetings all the time in Hebron. It's just not something we publicize because they're afraid to have their identity known, lest the Palestinian Authority uh, uses its muhabarat, its, its, its security services, to punish them by torturing them in their, in their jails, uh, like in Jericho, like my friend Muhammad Jabber was jailed and tortured for 60 days for showing a picture of himself uh, and Knesset member Yehuda Glick. Uh, so, so the first thing is I like to say is, Please do me a favor and don't – not you, Chen. I'm not talking to you directly. I'm talking to the audience, which is please do me a favor and, and don't sell me that the two-state solution is some kind of beautiful, uh, 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 idyllic democracy. It's really not. It created a thugocracy, which is a real term these days, which is a thuggish, a controlling organization that is really repressing the, the rights of people. So we did nothing good for the Palestinians. They get underpaid there. They, they, they can't speak what they want. They're afraid to show their pictures if they think anything different. That, that's number one. Nothing was created that was so beautiful and so democratic through the process of Oslo and the, and the efforts towards a two-state solution. I wrote an article in the New York Times which laid out five alternatives, five alternatives to the two-state solution. And it wasn't my ideas. It was ideas uh, by various intellectual leaders and, and politicians and professors who came up with different ideas. And I'll just speak about a few of them, not all of them. But maybe one, before I lay out the alternatives to the two-state solution, I just want to remind people something which is always forgotten in these kind of conversations. Israel is an ethnic national state. This region, the Middle East, has 400 million Arabs, 400 million Arabs in 22 countries. P.S., not one of them, not one, is a democratic country. Not one. Okay? And they live in these 22 countries in their way. And I don't want to force democracy on them because I'm not a Western colonialist telling Arabs exactly how they should live. They can live in their systems. That's fine with me. That's great. God bless them. They're my cousins and I want them to succeed. But they have 22 countries, 400 million Arabs. We have a small country in the midst of that. I call it a protectorate. Uh, an autonomous zone of six and a half million Jews. We've been persecuted by these Muslims uh, for generations in their lands, and certainly they've tried to attack us and destroy us many a time here in Israel. So the first thing is that I don't consider Israel the, the democratic aspect of it, which you mentioned what I said to the Atlantic, which was also taken out of context as usual, quoting the Atlantic is uh, is you know is dangerous because they themselves are are their journalism is, is questionable when it comes to Israel. But in any case, yes, I actually think that Israel is meant to be a protector for the Jewish people first, and it's supposed to ensure that the Jewish people have rights in our land and are defended and our culture can flourish. This is the the rights that are guaranteed for Arabs or other minorities are to me incidental to the main. Uh, goal of the Jewish state, which is to protect the Jewish people. It's an ethnic national state, like all the states around us, 
Just for example, uh, just right now, there's a conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Both of those, one is a Turkmen state, a Muslim Turkmen state, and the other one is a, a Christian Armenian state. These are ethnic national states. They don't, they don't, they treat their minorities a lot worse than we treat our minorities. But the point is, this is a small, tiny island of an ethnic national state. Now, what are we supposed to do as an ethnic national state that's trying to defend its own rights and has two, three million people living in a part of its land, some of whom are pro-Hamas, jihadist, and anti-Israel. What are we supposed to do with these folks? Well, the simplest answer of them all is that a two-state solution was already created in the 20s. A huge chunk of our land, which, which uh, was taken and became Jordan. Jordan is Jewish land that was taken to create a Palestinian state. How do I know it's a Palestinian state? Because 80% of the people living there identify as Palestinians. So we already have a Palestinian state. It was the state that pushed in and tried to take over our land here. We pushed them back out. We say to the Arabs living in the West Bank, the majority of whom were always Jordanians until 1988, until their, uh, until their citizenship was taken away, we say to them, get your, be reinstated, get your Jordanian citizenship back. Get Jordan to give you your citizenship back. You could stay here as residents. Israeli residency is a great thing. Okay, residency is, is something that's very beautiful. You get a lot of rights that you're protected. You get great roads, great health care, great upward mobility, great education. That's what I'd like to see for all peoples living in our land, minorities especially. I want to make sure that they are living well. But their citizenship, i.e. their voting, not that Jordan exactly votes, but okay, you know, but their flight, the, their passports and all that, that will be in the Palestinian state right next door. They'll live as expats here as residents and, and v- will vote. In Jordan. That's one option. Another option is what Mordechai Kedar writes. He writes, let them have their city states, big city states, big cities like Shechem, Nablus, uh, Hebron, Ramallah, etc., will be like self governing city states. They'll be living in Israel, they'll be Israeli residents, but they'll always feel that their law, their systems, their ways are the culture of that city, and they'll have some, some kind of limited autonomy or more correctly self-rule in these places because anyway the palestinians are not actually one people they're actually clannish the the jerusalem arabs jerusalem palestinians do not marry hebron palestinians it's considered shameful because they're just almost like a different people they're they're related in some way but they also see themselves as clannish and that's their main system of self-identification so that's two right one is jordan is palestine the other one is city states Uh, another one is very simply residency residency we give non-Jewish residents of the land residency. That means that they have rights, not equal rights, because we don't have equal rights in any of their states. We're not necessarily here. to The people that came out of the Holocaust weren't like, oh, my God, let's make a state with equal rights for Arabs. I don't think so. That is not what was in their mind at all. They were like, we need a state that protects our people in our land where we always had a state for our people. And by the way, that's the way it was in the in biblical times as well. There was peop- non-Jews who respected our kingdom or our commonwealth, had rights. We had to respect them, but they were not like the Jewish people. Just like we, we, are, not, we are not given rights in their ethnic national states. So the third and simplest one is, is, um, is residency in the land. In the end, the real simple solution of it all, the real simple solution is strong Arab states and a strong Jewish state at its heart. That's the real answer. Cooperating Arab states, let's say all the Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria will be Jordanians, but they'll live here. There'll be a strong Jordan, a strong Lebanon, a strong Syria, a strong Egypt, a strong Iraq, hopefully, what a mess that is, okay? A strong Saudi Arabia, a strong Emirates, and we will be in cooperation. 
but not to undermine the stability of the Jewish state by creating a Palestine in our heartland and creating a terror state that takes away our land and, and sits on our holy places, etc. That's not respectful. And the language of the Middle East is respect. The only way they're going to get respect is if they give respect. And right now they're not giving respect to our holy places and to our land. They're encroaching on our land. They're throwing rocks and, and, and other murderous objects at, at, our, at our citizens. They tunnel against us because we're not clear. This is our land. This is the rules. Live here and you will live in great success. If you don't want to live under these rules, get out and you'll find your self-determination somewhere else. So the truth of the matter is it's really so simple. The language that I'm talking about is the language of the Middle East. This is the lingo of the Middle East. In 56 land conflicts in this region, there's only one party out of all those 56 land conflicts, which has two sides, which is like, the way we'll have pieces will give our land away to you. That is such a joke. That is not the Middle East way. I had, a, I had a Kurdish friend working in Washington for Kurdish rights against Iran. And I said to him, you know what your problem is, bro? You should give more of your land away to Iran. Then you'll have peace. And we just started laughing because it was so absurd to give away our land to other peoples who are using population as a method of war is just to, a way to weaken Israel, to create a terror state, and to lose respect in the Middle East. I say be a strong Jewish state, surrounded by strong cooperative Arab states, and we'll move forward together. No, I, I, I just want to point out again that 304 commanders, former commanders of the IDF, brigadier generals, generals, uh, former, former um, um, major general, um, former head of Shabbat, former head of Shin Bet, um, and uh, um, for 304 of them, I, I don't know what they know about security, right? Um, but they think that we should, uh, um, the two-state solution is the way to go, and that um, what we've been doing with trying to kill this, uh, this perception, pers- this, uh, this, this hope and dream of uh, both people on both sides to live side by side um, is, uh, is just... Uh, you know, it's it's the only way to do it will be will be in a two uh, in a way of a two state. And I and I would say again, I mean, I I think that it's uh, um, if uh, you know, if we're talking about peace, um, do we think that peace is possible if Palestinians are not equal? Um, there, there was I, I heard the the ideas that you have, but um, all the ideas are just summing up to um, to making this population unequal uh, and living under uh, our control while they are they don't enjoy the same uh, benefits. And yes, we are indigenous to this land, and and uh, and I don't again, I don't dispute. Uh, our ties. I mean, I, I'm, I'm advocating for the ties that we have to our land. Um, but with knowing that and remembering it, I'm saying that this should be um, that we should be um, we're powerful enough to uh, to allow these people to have their own self determination. Do I know what it will look like? Do I know how the security security arrangements would look like? No, I don't. And I'm and I'm not even going to try and debate this because there's 304 former generals and the IDF and, and, and the Israeli um, uh, security forces that uh, gave their, their life, 305 of them that together would, you know, if you give, if you combine all their service together, it will be uh, longer than the, than, than the existence of, of, of the state of Israel. They know what they're saying. And I, and I tend to believe them when they say that a two-state solution is the only way uh, to maintain the identity of this country. And I love this country and I, I love Israel. I mean, I've, I've lived in Israel all of my life. I gave my, I gave five years of my, of my life to, to serving the IDF. I gave, uh, I give most of my adult life to to advocate for our country. And all I'm saying is just that just because, you know, I, I, I don't have love for the Palestinians. I don't have hate for them. I'm indifferent towards them. I feel bad for a lot of the things that happened to, to this community uh, by my government. 
Um, but I don't. But you know, I'm indifferent in general to this community. I don't care what what will happen to them, what what they will do with their lives. I I wish them well, of course. Um, but I think that's that's the point I'm coming from. I'm not saying it because I love Palestinians and I want them to to have a country, and I don't love it. I love Israel with all my heart, and I don't need to prove it. I think. Um, um, but yeah, I and think I, I, I want Hannah. Hannah, just yeah. like, I just say I just want to say I don't. I think we're having a discussion about policy, and not a discussion about whether you and I love Israel. I think that that is well-established, and nobody doubts that. I think within that, we're having a conversation about, about what Israeli policy should be. But there is one point that I, I have to stop you for a second and, and kind of yeah. make. Uh, you keep on referring to the 300 generals. You know, uh, that is a center-left organization. That's their policy towards a two-state solution. Um, a lot of people in our country feel differently, and an organization of other generals was created. It was called the Bitchonistim. It's called the Bitchonistim, which means the security-minded, security-minded folks. Today, it numbers fourteen hundred generals, high-level sayerot, uh, um, uh, the elite commando units, pilots. Fourteen hundred of the same type of people who stand exactly on the other side. And you can look them up. They're on Twitter. They're fabulous. They give speeches all the time. You don't have to take my word for it. They're called the Bitchonistim. They have a site in Hebrew and in English, and so. You know, okay, so you've got 300 on your side. There's another side. And, and, they, and they're very. Them. I would ch- love to ch- them. Are there, are ch- there all major generals in the. I mean, absolutely. A- absolutely. Because in Israel, the argument between right and left is, is not limited to bearded, you know, keep wearing guys like me. A lot of people in our country are nationalistic, as you could see by the voting patterns. And so it makes a lot of sense that there are generals, high-level generals, etc., that are on the other side, political side. And this organization rose up specifically in order to answer the organization that you're speaking of. So really, let's let's I'm just leave. Reading, the, and it says 180 people. Um, and no, they're not no, it's, the no. Their membership, their right. membership is is 1,400, so and, I, and I know that right, myself. So it's not brigadier generals and above, and it's not head of Shabak and head of Mossad. I mean, I, I can collect soldiers. I can collect thousands of soldiers that would say what I want to say, but we're talking about like it's you know. It's I, I don't. I don't think your. I don't think your 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 thirty second research into this organization is is okay. is, is, is so that I'm valuable. Sure. I think. I think that in the end, my point to you is yeah. that is that you can quote other people and outsource your opinion to these uh, so called generals that know everything. But you know, I- I- Israel is a democracy for good and for bad. And in our democracy, we've got generals on the right and generals on the left, politicians on the right, politicians on the left. And if we like all, you know, show whose general is, is you know, let, let me show you, you know, how big my general is. You know, if we do a comparison of generals, it's it's a, it's a little, no, but, but it's, it's, it's not real politics. It's not real policy. I mean, those people served most of their, all of their, I mean, we're talking about brigadier generals and above. They had to serve in the IDF for at least 20 years. We're talking about head of Shabaks and head of of. Of, uh, of of Mossad, it's not it's not kids, you know. Like let's give them the respect they they gave their life to defend the country, and that's I, what they're I, saying. I, of them. I I give plenty of respect, but I'm not a communist to salute the you know the great founders and leaders. I'm I'm here to think about it with an active mind, no, and, but that's, and, that's and my active point. mind makes it clear to me. And also, by the way, the majority of Israelis, as you could see, again and again through the voting patterns and through other. Uh, even even the polls that you quoted are less than 50%. Even the polls that you quoted. And the bottom line is that Israelis, as you can see by Israeli policy, forget everything else. The policy of Israel is to hold on to this land. The Pompeo doctrine is hold on to this land. Nobody's saying give this land away. It doesn't work anymore because if you give the land away, it's both wrong 
uh, uh, morally and in terms of justice and also creates a terror state right next door. That's a proven fact. So I don't, you know, okay, to, you want to keep quoting the, the, the 300 generals, Tfadal, that's, that's, your, that's your prerogative. To me, it's not a strong argument. I understand. I understand. And, and your point about the, the, the polls, um, I mean, if, if we live in the security aspect that, again, I'm not going to quote again, but everyone can Google uh, securities for uh, commanders for, uh, for Israel's security and find out who these people are. And they, each and every one of them are respected generals that, again, gave tens of years of their lives to, to defend Israel. But the polls that I quoted, uh, all of them are, at least, are almost 50 percent. We saw some change, you know, from 50 right. almost 50 is less than 50. Just making sure we, we say that. Right. Like I said, I said and, less and than 50. 50. Yeah, but but definitely the majority of Israelis. Um, that's that you're not arguing, right? Majority of Israelis will agree on that. The majority of Israelis please, please it. check out my Twitter feed and check out Shkaki, who himself today mm-hmm. says that twenty. That let me just get the figure exactly. Yeah, I know. Shkaki says thirty-six percent of Israelis believe in a two-state solution. Hey, Chen, like we can argue numbers all day long. That's not. That's not. It's not so exciting for me. I I work in a town, Chevron, which which on Shabbat Chai Sarah, when we read the 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 Torah portion where Abraham purchases the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs, we have forty thousand people come for Shabbat, and ten percent of the Knesset, ten percent of the Knesset itself shows up. About twelve Knesset members and ministers show up. Okay, so to me, take every single Likud movement to convince those people and and to and, and to have a political control. I'm sh- I'm sure because you also. Representatives in is, the that, is that meant to be? Is that is that meant to be? Is that meant to be pejorative? I don't have that. You know, Israelis don't have the, a group of people that are Israelis outside of the green inside Israel. Don't have people that are like you, like you do. And and you can you we can't argue you can't argue that you know you have people in the Knesset that their only job is to make sure that you can stay in the settlements, right? Is is that, that a pejorative? You mean I was able to elect the Knesset members that that serve my interests? Yeah, yeah, is, that, is that meant to be something yeah. bad, or is that no, or is that not, the, the root of not, democracy? But it doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make it um, as if Israelis really care. I mean, I gave you the polls from different pollsters from uh, from left to right from 2000, 2007 to uh, two thousand and twenty, and and the and the two ones, the two recent ones. Do you have any polls about the last Trump elections? Right also, to, to put and they're both showing that fifty percent of Israelis, almost fifty percent of Israelis, the majority of Israelis, okay, majority over forty five percent of Israelis. Do, don't agree with you, and and that's that's what you need to remember. Most I wasn't very good in math in in, in, in high them. school, but I know that like I think that I think that less than fifty percent is less than a majority. But that's just me. I, I was really I wasn't I was more of a language guy than a math guy. But but as I see it, both the Knesset, which has been a right wing Knesset for many years now, and the polls and the new polls, they all seem to say that under fifty percent Israeli supported. But also after the Gaza uh, 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 eviction. Uh, evacuation the, the, the oh by the right government yeah right the right government means that the right that the people elected yes right? well, you're, you're waving the right wing government as if it says that it's on your side it's not on your side right wing government just means that it's right wing it doesn't mean that it's support the settlements Ariel Sharon was right wing as they come and he opposes the settlements so no he I didn't mean, oppose he, the settlements he built the settlements he wasn't opposed to the settlements he 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 was he he decided to do a, a disengagement in Gaza he wasn't opposed to the settlements that's absurd that's an absurdity Ariel Sharon built the, the settlements in Gaza was what what was it that was led it, by was, it, it was his idea and was a proven failure. It was a bad idea. It was Ariel Sharon was very sad that a man like that came to such a conclusion, but it was proven. And most Israelis believe that the Gaza uh, eviction was a was a big fat mistake. I mean, really, like it empowered Hamas in in those 
in that beautiful land, as, as the Torah says, Hamas. the land was filled with Hamas. So exactly that's what happened in Gaza. In any case, look, we can argue, you know, uh, uh, for forever well, about can, polls can and different things. But point about Ariel Sharon, because that's important. You're misrepresenting a, a late prime minister. Um, and, and, I, and I said in the beginning, he said, you may not like the, the word, but what is happening is an occupation. It's a disaster for Israel and for the Palestinians. He said that in 2003, and he did the Gaza pullout. So to say that Ariel Sharon was supporting the settlement, his actions prove otherwise. His actions, he built the settlements, literally he built the, the settlements. He was the okay, one that was one, he did it in one place. And, and, and read his article in the Your Beloved Atlantic. The, in Atlantic, he says, I should have stressed more, not the security needs of Israel, but the ancient connections. This was with Ari Shavit in Atlantic. Just look it up, Ari, Ari Shavit, Ariel Sharon Atlantic. And he says, really, I should have stressed more. The tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. How this is our founding place. How no other nation has a monument like this. Like this is where we come from. This is the root of our people. And really, to repaint Ariel Sharon. I, look, we we don't have to argue about this. Your position is Ariel Sharon was against the settlements. I think that is absurd. Ariel Sharon was the builder of the settlements. He's he's one of the masterminds of it. He said, and "Take the hell times." That, initiate, that orchestrated that for Gaza. Port. Yes, and that was and that was and that was his great mistake and downfall. By the way, he was. You know, some people think some some uh, when I. I picked sure, up. But you know, can't say you're right and then tell me I'm wrong. If you're saying I'm right, I'm right. It's not you're right. No, you're right about a small part. See, the, the, small the, part the, of one Gaza thing Gaza doesn't Gaza teach you about the rest. Did, is there? Gaza did Ariel Sharon ever say that he was going to pull out of the settlements? He, did he ever say he was going to pull out of the rest of the settlements? No. Are you saying that the Gaza pullout is a small part of our history, or is it a major one? It was a major one and a oh, horrible, okay, so horrific mistake. If anything, I'm thankful to Ariel Sharon for being the last puller outer because no Israeli government is going to do that again because of the stupidity of giving away our land to to Hamas. Of course, by the way, I was in Gaza uh, before before the evacuation and the Arabs on the other side of fences were saying, don't do this to us. You don't understand the slavery that we're going to be under. Who's going to take control here? Don't do this to us. Under you, we have we have we have opportunity. We have education. We, we, we have we have jobs. We have we have something. We're going to be slaves under these guys. And look what they've done. Hannah, do you really want to tell me that you're proud of Israel for pulling out of Gaza and letting Hamas destroy the lives of, of a million Palestinians? Is that really like a victory for the, for the center-left? I don't see it. I, I mean, my, my heart breaks for what's going on in Gaza, and I think if we would put out, in, not in the unira- unilateral withdrawal, rather than um, um, helping the side that we've been controlling and the people that we've been controlling for, uh, for a long time, uh, um, before we pulled out, have an agreement, a peace agreement, because this pullout was not, as you said, I agree, it wasn't smart. It had to be uh, done better. But uh, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't think, and I don't think you honestly believe that uh, um, that people around the world will, uh, anywhere, will remain peaceful when they are, uh, when they don't have full equality, uh, when they feel like they're. Where, you know, where they're, do, they're, where do, where do Arabs have full equality in any of their lands? It's the equality is a Western. Sometimes I, I wonder when center left people, they just talk like colonialists. Is equality even a piece of a word that's actually used in the 22 Arab countries around us? They don't live like that. They live in tribes. They live in kingdoms. They live in I mean, a I don't need way. a reminder. My family is Iraqi and Tunisian, and my fam- my father is a Mazik Tunisian. He's a tribal man. I know what tribalism so, is. So, so don't sell me. So don't. So you should so stop selling me equality. Not- when, but, when you know perfectly well that that's not the like rules Iraq. of the Middle East. I don't want to be like what happened to my grandparents. They escaped the Farhud. They escaped Tunisia. You don't know what this experience is like because you didn't experience in those countries. I mean, 
I'm not. I'm, I'm just telling you, like my family. Even, my even Polish Jews have heard of some persecution. I want to tell you that. P.S. By the way, half of my family. I've got family from from Spain, uh, from Donia Chie. No, so no I, I, I have a no I have a smarty side no, also. I mean, but the bottom line, we we know we the all we just, let's not show each other's Arab persecution. Oppression. Okay. They lived under Muslim oppression, and they lived in a Muslim country and an Arab country. And I know what this oppression is like. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want our country to be like that. That's and not good news. And good news. Good news, Hen. You're never going to be a big oppressor. You got, I got great news for you. We still yeah. created the most liberal country in the whole Middle East. We are the shining beacon of liberal values. You don't have to worry. No, even under, even the... under Yishai Fleischer's most, uh, most uh, you know, expansive dream, we're still going to treat our people, whoever lives in our land, really good. Okay, much better than the damn Palestinian Authority. So do me a favor, please. Don't don't sell me that the nice guy thing to do is to put them under a thug regime and and help maintain that regime over them i am saying it, it is up to me because it's my land and not theirs oh, it so is up to me you're to not the master of this people that's, a, that's i'm what not i'm, I'm not the master of the people i'm master not, of the land talking, and if, if they the want to live in my land they better behave by the rules the better behave by the rules that's the problem you know the end point is that for for the settlement movement peace is simply not a priority the priority is that is that is that you're right our rights are our our rights is the priority you're absolutely right you're absolutely right our rights is the priority in our small land and not this not this fuzzy fuddy-duddy western world peace 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 that's not the way it is around here you have to have respect and they'll respect you when I'm not. I'm, of course, I'm for peace, but you know, in, in Judaism, in Judaism, the word shalom is one of the names of God. So I always tell people, don't overuse the. You know, you're not supposed to take the God's name in vain. Don't say shalom too many times. Like, take it easy before you give me a whole like, oh, peace, peace, peace. What peace did you create? What peace did the two-state solution create? The Palestinian Authority is one of the most oppressive jihadist regimes in the world. For God's sakes, you didn't create peace. You created an outdoor jail for them called the Palestinian Authority. I am saying, let them have decencies and rights under Israel, the most liberal country in the whole Middle East, and we'll hold on to our land, we'll push back on the bad guys, and the Arabs will thank you for it. When you meet an Arab on the street, when you meet Palestinian Arabs, which I do often, they say to me all the time, we just want one thing. We want Israeli residency. We want you to protect us from the Palestinian Authority, and we want an opportunity to have a job in upward mobility. I have Arabs tell me, I'll never forget this, this was in Kiradar, but we met at a gas station. Arab says to me, you give me residency, my son will serve in your army and become a police officer for your people in your land. We will, we will help ensure and protect Israel. And you can see that, that, that same attitude coming from the UAE now, which is, Israel, you're an ethnic national state. We respect your boundaries. We respect your borders. Please treat the Arabs decently, the Arab minorities in, in your land decently. Of course, we will. And 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 we will we, the, the whole Middle East will flourish. Yeah, what you're, what you're no. offering is jihadist control of the whole. No, I'm not, That's no, what you're offering. It's not. I mean, the, the, I mean, you're you're right. The UAE and every peace deal that we had was conditioned on us not annexing and stopping the settlement, stopping the settlement building. The end point is very clear, and I think that we're. Can, can, and and, and did the Israeli government I, just I green like five thousand new apartments or not? Yes or no? Yeah, I allowed you to speak. I'll just I'll just say it again that the end point is that. For the pro-settlement movement, peace is simply not a priority. The international and Israeli community, everyone understand that the settlements are an obstacle to peace. Uh, and, and instead of denying that reality, I think we should just admit it. And, um, and you know, that, that for people like, for the people in the settlements, I don't want to, I mean, I, I think for, from what I'm reading from you, uh, to settle in your area and live in this, in this land is more important in you, for you than, uh, uh, than ending violence and then 
uh, and to having um, people living as equal citizens in a, in a country and and having peace with them. And, that's and, for me. and that was a lot of that was a lot of twisting of words. And let me twist words right back at you. Your peace will bring war. My war against jihadism and for holding on to our land will bring peace, as mm-hmm. is seen now through the the peace deals. This a thing that you're saying about the UAE stopping us from 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 uh, continuing to grow the settlements. The Israeli government just last week announced 5,000 new apartments, building uh, building permits in Judea and Samaria. So clearly Horrible. the UAE is not so concerned about that. In fact, if you look at their rhetoric, they actually are very upset with the Palestinian Authority, not so much with Israel living in Judea. By the way, Hen, let's just make it clear. Jews are from Judea. Jews living in Judea is not an obstacle to peace. It's the truth. And truth is never an obstacle to peace. It's the way forward. And if you have a truth-based peace, when people accept the truth that you're from this land and you're going to control this land and that you're going to give decencies and rights to minorities living in your land, people respect you. You're acting like a Middle Easterner. Sometimes, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get personal here because you and I, we have, we, we really see eye to eye on so many things. And I really do respect you very much. And I really hope that we're having a policy argument. But I do yeah, sometimes, yeah, I do good. sometimes wonder a little bit why it is that you flout. You promote your Middle Eastness, your Tunisianness, your Iraqiness, and yet you talk like a Western liberal, which is a total like colonialist language, which does not fit this place. I don't understand like where you on the one hand have this like I'm from the Middle East and I know what's going on. On the other hand, you talk like like no no Arab, no Arab chief, no no Jew from Judea should really speak. I mean, you know what why? you're, what, what you you're really why? saying Can is Jews should not live in Hebron. Do you understand Can that? Can I tell you why? Because because I don't have the luxury of having any other passport. My family came. I don't have any other nationality. I don't have American nationality like That's you absurd. do. I have only Israeli nationality. My mom can't go back to Iraq. My dad can't, can't go back to Tunisia. I want Israel to survive. I want this country to thrive. And I want it to be the best country and live in peace with our neighbors. Because peace also almost took, because the fact that we didn't have peace almost took my life when I was 12. It took the life of my family members in Iraq and in Tunisia. Uh, and I want Israel to be able to protect itself, and I want Israel to live, a, live in peace with its neighbors. And I and I do, and because I come from a family that went under oppression, I know how horrific it is in the Middle East to live under oppression. And I don't want it to be like that for anyone else. I want everyone to be equal. And yeah, and it's uh, and and I know that you oppose equality and and oppose the ideas of of peace, uh, and you mock the idea of peace. I'm not mocking it because I have no other alternative. And I'm going to raise children in Israel that I don't want them to go to the army. I don't want them to serve. I don't know how, how long you served in the army, but my family, my, I served for five years. All of my family members served in the army. I don't want them to be to have a mandatory army. And even if there is an army, I don't want it to be a mandatory one. Uh, I want my, my family and I want my kids one day to live in peace in this country. And that's, that's all I'm about. I respect your point and I certainly respect your service. Uh, I myself served in the paratroopers and then Miluim many years in the uh, in the elite unit within the paratroopers. I didn't. You didn't. I just said I didn't. I'm just. Anything. I'm just saying. You mentioned that's so all. Mentioned my yeah. my my bona fides yeah. about that. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, and I've, I'm very proud. And and with regarding to this passport thing, I never heard anybody say that to me. But I'll just say I do have another passport. Uh, I was never planning on on going back to America. To me, maybe maybe a Jew that chooses the land of Israel. Right, because he could have been somewhere else, like New York City. Like I could have been a lawyer in New York City, but instead I choose to be here. It's also pretty high level, which is like I am here by choice, not because I was forced here. And I'm certainly, to me, Israel is the greatest passion of my life. I also think that you will agree with me that it's the greatest passion of our generation. Yeah. And so, um, 
you know, we all let's not doubt each other's commitment and love to this land. No, no, I'm not. I'm and, not and, and, and a commitment right. to to also decency and fairness to all peoples. But Ishai, you accuse me of being, uh, you know, saying, "What are you coming to here with those liberal ideas that you have nothing to do with this area?" So I just re- replied. I said, "I don't have the luxury or the privilege to have any other to think about anything else other than the survival of my country and the thriving of my country." Well, the only thing is, I, the only thing is, I just feel that my worldview says to me that that way of speaking and thinking is actually perceived in this region as weakness, because in a kind of sense it is a weakness, uh, because it has a whole set of other values that, that intermingle and mix up what, what the Jewish state is all about. The Jewish state is, first and foremost, a protectorate for the Jewish people, and uh, as I said before, it's a, it's a small autonomy within this region, and the, the, our first role is to protect our minority, and other countries are, are dedicated to protecting their minority. I, I, uh, as a nationalist, I actually think that our Jewish state has to, and by the way, the Torah says the same thing, it has to give decencies and opportunities to what's called the Ger Toshav, a resident alien, uh, to, give him, to give, him up, give him upward mobility and freedoms and opportunities and medical school and whatever you want, great, you know, great education, etc., it's not going to happen under a Palestinian authority. It's going to happen under an Israel. Uh, a bigger Israel means more rights for more people. Uh, and Palestine means less rights for more people. Uh, and it means an eternal war. And I really believe that we're actually seeing the two-state solution leave the scene right now. Uh, we're seeing a, a, a sea change. And the Jewish people are going to be deeply rooted as they were uh, in 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 the first commonwealth and the second commonwealth and now in the third commonwealth in the heartland of the holy land where our forefathers and mothers walked so i, I have a question for, for both of you for you Shai, for, for you it's i listened to what both of you said and one of the things i struggle with with the the model that you're building is that for 70 plus 100 years there's been an ethnic conflict between jews and the arabs it's been going on for many many years and there are 2.5, 3 million, 2 million different people give different numbers, Palestinians living there with a strong sense of identity that if they've been engaged in a conflict for, for decades, the idea that they suddenly just yield and stop and take on Jordanian citizenship but live within Judea and Samaria, I, I don't see how that would come about without extreme violence or more conflict. I, I, I struggle to see how they would just suddenly roll over all of a sudden and say, actually, yeah, no, we give up our national aspirations. They've got strong national aspirations, and I just can't see that going away other than force. So in terms of the peace aspect of the debate, um, is it possible? How, how, do you, what, how do you envisage the millions of Palestinians that identify as Palestinians that have been engaged in conflict, which despises Israel in many cases. I, I speak to lots of Palestinians, and they, truthfully, <laughs> don't always speak in the fondest of terms. And many do. You're right. You've brought examples. I've met many Palestinians who really want peace and love Israelis, but there's a sizable proportion that don't. You mentioned Hebron is Hamasistan, I think. It's like it's a little stronghold for Hamas. They're, they're not going to suddenly embrace this, this new worldview. So I can only see that coming about by God. But then on the flip side, then, what happens to the 600,000 Jews that live there. You know, do they suddenly become Palestinian citizens in your worldview? Do, do you, you mentioned that the pull out from Gaza was a disaster. 
And it was, I think we can all agree on the panel, that was an absolute disaster. But what happens to the hundreds of thousands of Jews that live there today? I mean, if you're talking about the security of your people and the safety of your people, I'm not sure how many would feel safe in a future Palestinian state. And so I think that, that really dealing on what happens to both of these populations in both of the world, and um, both of the, the models that you presented, is, I'm really interested to hear. You're absolutely first thing, Joseph, you're absolutely right uh, that there's no panacea. Uh, there's no instant solving of the hundred years of brainwashing of the, the Arabs and especially the Palestinian Arabs who live in who've really started living in the West Bank since uh, since nineteen forty eight mostly. Uh, they've been brainwashed to hate Israel for a long time. You're 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 really absolutely right about that, um, but the answer is clearly not to then give them a chunk of land so that they can control it with that hate and then shoot at Israel. That's that's really not the way to go. Um, look, I'm involved with various. Um, you would call them peace movements. I think we call them conversations with Arabs that, that want a future, Arabs and Israelis that want a future together, that recognize that, that, that we're both not going anywhere. At least the non-jihadists are not going to go anywhere. Uh, and and I, I see different numbers and different things on the ground than, than, than other people. I see a lot of Arabs that actually are tired of the conflict and, and have come to the most important conclusion that the Arab world is coming to, which is, Israel isn't going anywhere. The wars against Israel were all premised upon the idea that Israel will be at some point erased. Some point they will, quote-unquote, throw us into the sea. Uh, and they've just come to the conclusion that that's not happening. Now, when I was a kid, uh, when I was born, uh, the countries like Egypt and Syria and Iraq were very strong countries. They were strong economically. They had output. Uh, they were they were really they were really you know Egyptian cotton Egyptian tourism Syria, you know Syria Lebanon these were strong countries their hate has led them all to to become weak countries economically weak countries uh, countries that really don't support their own people's bare minimum in Syria civil war uh, hundreds of thousands killed uh, Iraq is a failed state Egypt is always on the verge of economic collapse barely able to f f feed its millions and so like they are coming they're starting to realize that their hundred years of hate has led to their own economic and development demise and Israel on the other hand is it's like in its flourishing moment economically militarily relationships around the world and so the Arabs are looking around and they are sensing that this is just not going anywhere. We're not going to defeat Israel. Jihadism has done nothing for our lives. It's not like the old days, like in, like in the year 637, where you could be a big jihadist army and the more you conquer, the more you control and the, and the more power you have. It's not like that today. Today, jihadism leads to uneducated masses, to, to, to women who don't go to school and, and suppression, all kinds of stuff like that. And they're looking around, they look at Israel, they look at the UAE, they look at other countries that are moving forward in a decent way. They have the internet, right? Because even in poor countries, you still have a, cell, a smartphone. And somehow you're looking around and you're thinking to yourself, what the hell do I need this conflict with Israel for? It's a total waste of time. It's, they're not going anywhere, these guys. And so better, if you can't beat them, let's join them and let's have economic 
opportunity and prosperity. Let's have business. Let's have a life. Let's build a house. Let's send our kid to grade school and not teach them to hate Israel, to fight because it's worthless. It's pointless. Our jihadist leaders are not only sending us to our deaths, they're also embezzling all the money that they collect from around the world for us. So Arabs are looking around and they're starting to understand this reality that's really become um, cemented. Uh, in in really the last, I think, 20 years, a realization that their civilization and societies are going down while Israel is going up. And they're starting to change direction. I think that the Abraham Accords is the beginning uh, of a deep felt, uh, you know how Victor Hugo said, there's nothing more powerful than idea whose time has come. And that's, that's what's happening right now. They're realizing that it's over. It's time to cooperate with Israel. It's time to move forward. Abraham Accords is one of the most beautiful names I could have ever dreamt of or imagined because it bespeaks of our joint, of our, of our, of our father in common, uh, our common father. And so I expect the Palestinian Authority to dissolve in the near future. And I expect Arabs to more and more move towards Israeli residency and, and other forms. Uh, and I expect the jihadists to come out of the closet. We'll fight them. We'll deal with them. Uh, but they won't win. And I think that their own societies will rise up against them and 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 uh, and and make a coup against them because they want to move forward and live. I did meet the gentleman you were quoting from the Palestinian Front, the research center, um, and he shared with me a fascinating statistic, which I'm going to misremember. But it was basically a large percentage of Palestinians between the ages of 18 and 25. And I wish I could remember the number. Um, maybe someone in the, the, the comments will, will flag it for me. Would prefer to live under Israel than to live under the Palestinian Authority. And when I asked him why that was, he said, well, they look at Israel and they see the Israeli people throwing their corrupt politicians in prison. <laughs> and they wish they could do that to Abu Mazen. And so I, I do hear some of what you're saying about the sentiment changing on the, on the, uh, the street level. But I'd also say I think you can't underplay the religious aspect of this. I mean, you keep on talking about um, religious fundamentalism being on the out. And when you look at, like, you've got somewhere like Egypt, where I think half of the population under the age of 25 are unemployed. You've got, like, you know, it was 75% of the population under 25. It was a staggering statistic, unemployed. You look at Syria, which has been ravaged by a religious war. You look at Lebanon, which is on the brink, like the brink of influence. You're surrounded by states where religious fundamentalism isn't going away. And you both opened, that's why I asked those questions at the beginning, to see where you stood. You both opened that Jerusalem is the undivided capital of um, Israel. But when you're looking at the sentiment of the surrounding states who pose an actual threat to Israel, and it's interesting that neither of you see them, the, 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 um, Hahabite, the Temple Mount, as a settlement, because under the international community, it would be potentially considered a settlement, because they originally envisaged it as being, well, it was Jordanian, it was conquered by Jordan. Um, and so the religious world looks at Jerusalem, looks at Al-Quds, and sees that uh, Masjid al-Aqsa as being central to their faith. And I think you can't also separate the religious aspect. I don't think religious fundamentalism is going away. It's on the increase. And when you have mass unemployment, people look for cause, people look for something. And they're going to latch, in my opinion, they're going to latch onto um, conflicts which have huge religious significance, like liberating the Temple Mount. Uh, in their words, not mine, obviously. 
And I guess, Hen, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to my 600,000. What happens to the 600,000 Jews that live there in your two states? Yeah, I'm not sure where this number is coming from, the 600. Okay, I, I was using the shade, but I'll pull it up because that's the number. I there's a, there's six, if, you, if you count oh, East okay. Jerusalem, there's about 400,000 in Judea and Samaria proper and about 200,000 Eastern Jerusalem. I know, we Okay, yeah, because according to the um, um, to the main uh, bureau of statistics, the Israeli main uh, bureau of statistics, they said that there's 441,000. But, but East Jerusalem is considered right? by the international and, and community that, also occupied. Right, but I think we already established that uh, that, that Jerusalem is uh, is going to uh, remain. I think it's um, all going to remain. Court, uh, we both agree. That, <laughs> so, I'm, but I'm saying I'm taking I'm separating this this debate because that we both agree that Jerusalem is uh, is should should remain Israel capital. Um, I just disagree with with the rest with Judea and Samaria, and I think it's important to um, to point out that uh, um, the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, uh, that fifty percent of uh, of the of the area, almost fifty percent, is Area C, right? And Area A and B, where no Jews live in, is another fifty percent. About the, I mean, percent here, percent there, uh, but the majority, the, not the majority. I'm sorry, all Israeli Jews that live in the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, all the settlers live in Area C, correct? Yep. Yeah. Most that's mostly, right. that's right. Except for a few right. outlying places, that's right. Yeah, and H one and H two, but I'm also including Area C within within H two, uh, H two within Area C. So I think that the point is that uh, um, these areas, and and that's something that also, of course, we're talking about that the main blocks of settlements will be attached to Israel. Um, and that's something that both Palestinians and Israelis uh, agree on. Um, that those blocks and talking Ariel, Bushetzion, Maladumim, uh, those areas is go are going to be part of Israel. No one is no so, one is disputing so it. So just to be clear, those settlements are not an obstacle to peace. The big ones, the main blocks of settlements. I I think that uh, yeah, no, I don't think that they are the obstacle. Uh, in general, so the little ones are the problem. Yeah, the little ones are the problem. The small ones that are built specifically in strategic points uh, to make sure that there will never be a Palestinian state and are like like Malay Dumim, which which is about forty thousand people, which blocks uh, uh, Beit Lechem from joining up with Jerusalem. Should that yeah. be maybe evacuated forty thousand people? Yeah, but 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 no one is disagreeing that Jerusalem is going to be part of Israel. I think we both agree on that as well, right? Uh, and I also said just said that Malay Dumim should be a part attached to Israel. I think it's one of the main settlement blocks that were agreed both by the Palestinians, by the Palestinian Authority, by the PLO and Israel, um, that the main blocks would be attached to Israel. That's agreed. I mean, I don't think we should go back to it. But the problem is that um, the, out, the outposts and the, and, the, and the communities that have been settled in specific ge strategic ge geographical uh, geographic locations, uh, I don't think you would have done it if you didn't think that it, you're going to have, that it's going to be challenging um, to get the Israeli public behind it. I think it was done to, to set facts on the ground, and still the Israeli public um, are still not buying into, even though there's a campaign that's been going on for a long time by the settlement movement uh, to convince Israelis that the settlements are going to help them. Uh, almost half of the Israeli population are um, uh, disagree with that, and 30%, about 30% are on the fence on it. Um, so I think that uh, um, the, the solution is pretty clear, like to attach the, the main box of the settlements and... and, and the, the makeup or the security uh, arrangement of the Palestinian state, that's not something that I'm going to go into. But again, there's smart generals that know better than me what what the security should be like, um, that know better than all of us, than all three of us, what the security arrangement of this area can be like. But they say that it works. So uh, I tend to believe uh, IDF uh, generals, former head of Shabak, former head of Mossad, uh, they know what they're talking about when it gets to security. Uh, and what will happen with a small with a small percentage of those outposts? 
um, we'll have to make compromise. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is a way to um, uh, to have uh, uh, an agreement with them that they will be compens compensated uh, if they don't if they don't wish to live under Palestine, which I don't think they should stay there. Um, um, on, on how they can move to somewhere else. So let's just pick on this. I think it's, I think this is the most interesting aspect of the conversation, which is are settlements an obstacle to peace? And I think it's fair to say that they are certainly an obstacle to a two-state solution. Um, you both have cited examples of settlements which get in the way of connecting different Palestinian neighborhoods together. Um, you've cited A, B, and C, you've cited where the Palestinians are living, where the Jews are living. So I think it's fair to say that in terms of a two-state solution, they are somewhat of an obstacle. Would uh, Do we have consensus? Do we both agree with that? Is that a fair statement? So I Absolutely. Guess Absolutely. I think, I think it's just very important to know that we have always stood against the two-state solution, and the settlement enterprise is first and foremost a return to our beloved homeland and our indigenous land where we're from. Secondarily, it's to block the very, very bad idea of the two-state solution, that paradigm that created, created the intifadas, the, 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 the wars against us, uh, the, 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 all the attacks against us, all that comes out of the Palestinian Authority. So yeah, we are, we the Jews, the brave Jews, the proud and brave Jews that live in Judea and Samaria, the so-called settlers, uh, are the folks that both love their land a lot and also uh, stand against the two-state solution, certainly. And, and Ishai, what, what do you say to the Palestinian refugees that are telling you that they want to go back to their homeland? I say, to, yeah. I, I say to them, you've never had a state here. Uh, there has mm -hmm. never been a, uh, a, a Palestine in this land. Uh, the, 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 you have right to property as long as you're not jihadist and want to d destroy Israel. If you are called to destroy Israel... Uh, and you, you fight a war against us, you lose your property. That's a principle of international law, which is when you make an offensive war uh, and uh, you lose property, you lose land in that, in that effort, you lose that land in perpetuity. Uh, this is our land in terms of a sovereign, in terms of uh, individuals who well, deserve their, their rights. Sovereign, right? What's that? Before, I mean, up till the creation, the reestablishment of a Jewish state in this area, we weren't a sovereign nation there. No, but, but there was no sovereign Palestine. Certainly, the right, Palestinians right, right. were absolutely. Yeah. There wasn't. I agree with you that there wasn't ever a sovereign Palestine. Um, but those people lived there, right? We both agree that these people. Some, some, some. If you read from time immemorial, excuse me, just I'm getting a little more sprite here. Uh, if you, uh, if you uh, l read uh, from time, thanks, Malka. If you read uh, from time immemorial, you'll see that she claims, and and many studies claim that the majority of Palestinians are actually great Zionists in the sense that they came to the land of Israel searching for economic opportunities. They're economic migrants. Uh, when is the, the nascent Jewish state started creating job opportunities here. So, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, and then that turned into millions uh, of Arabs actually came here very late in the game. Uh, they will tell you different stories, but the fact is, is, that, is that the majority, you can just read uh, uh, Mark Twain's uh, uh, description of the land of Israel is practically empty. He counts, you know, he sees, you know, thousands, yeah, a few thousands. Jewish, yeah. That's he right. And so, and so, and so, and so, like this whole narrative, and that's what we're talking about here, what I call a narrative war, the narrative war that there was this, you know, rich, huge Palestine, Israel came and ethnically cleansed everybody. It's bogus. It's a bogus right. story. Uh, we agree is, on that, but the question but, is, what will we do with the legitimate claim of Palestinians, Palestinian refugees that were actually, whether it's their fault or not, whether they were part of the war or not, 
um, like you are saying, you know, we want to go back to where we lived for hundreds of years. Uh, we, of we, course, you have stronger ties, but but you know, indigeneity is not a story that you a story. Uh, I, you know, I think I think in the best case scenario, and I think I think in the best case scenario, there's financial uh, packages that, that 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 can be made. You know, the the, the refugees. You know, there's so many there's so many fake stories out there. So many fake documents, yeah, yeah. and the, and the whole the whole idea that Jordan allotted this this land thief called Jordan allotted plots of land to to his various people, and then now that we're and they never even took up this land, and now that we're back, we, you know, we somehow have to compensate Jordan, you know, former Jordanians that that somehow you know stole our land, and 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 the king divided up. It's it's really an absurdity. Uh, if if somebody does have a legitimate claim, I think they could go to court and get compensation, but that's it. Because this is this this is our land, and 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 this is, you know what I mean. If they ran from it and and then they gave it up, maybe maybe there could be compensation. But generally, no, that's I exactly it. And we and we don't have status in all of the homes like your family left behind in Iraq and, and Tunisia. That's really the nature of the exchange of populations that happened when Israel was announced. About eight hundred thousand Jews were kicked out, and all the property was taken uh, from 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 Arab lands. Uh, from from uh, from the Mizrahi lands and 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 about it maybe you know some number it's really not certain of Palestinians also ran and there's an element of of an exchange of population. The bottom yeah. line is that we're the sovereigns in this land. That's really it's really that simple. I would imagine that the majority of those that did flee fled from places like Haifa, Jaffa. They didn't flee from Judea and Samaria. So the issue is actually an issue, a problem for those that are living over the Green Line rather than those that are living. In the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. Yeah, some of them fled to the West Bank, to Judea and Samaria, from Haifa, from uh, uh, from Jaffa. Some of them stayed, um, and some of them fled to other places for sure. But I just the point was like to show to uh, I, because I want to understand. Like I think, I think the big issue that I have is that is that a lot of things that Ishai is saying um, um, are just. I feel like I'm hearing it a lot about Israel. And I'm hearing a lot of, you know, wh- why do you have rights for self-determination? Why? Because you were here a few thousands of years ago, but you, you never had a country since then. You know, why? What is your? Why is our claim stronger than other people? Why can we? Why when I'm speaking about our rights to live here and us being uh, refugees uh, and, the, and the fact that, and you're absolutely right, 850,000 Jewish refugees came from the Middle East and North Africa, and the land that was stolen from us is equal to five times the size of the land of Israel today. Five times. You're good, Hen. You're good. Took from us. But I'm not blaming the Palestinians as, for that. And I know that they never existed before as a, as a community. And I agree that in, in the 60s, it was created, it was part of... I, I, we are in agreement on all this, but I still don't think that we can deny the fact that there are people now and that they have uh, uh, inspirations, political aspirations uh, for self-determination. And I can't fight for my self-determination, for our country's self-determination when I deny theirs. Hen, Hen, every, every person that's going to come and make a claim is equal to your claim? It's absurd what you're saying. It's no, just because a group of you you just laid out a better case than I did for why this whole thing is fake, and now you're saying, but at the same time, I can't deny their claim. Like that's why there's a court. In court, claims are decided. Sometimes there's fraudulent claims. This is not a real claim. Yeah, it's not a good claim. Court. It's not an equal claim. It's not an equal claim. I mean, listen, I have to advocate for myself. I don't care what the court says. I have to. I mean, if I if I go to court and I accept their the rulership over me, maybe I'll care. But in this case, you know what I mean. I think that there's also the court of 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 how things are done in the Middle East, and we fought for our land. We defeated enemies that wanted to throw us into the sea, and all the stuff that you said. And not all claims are equal. Not like like let's say let's say you have Chinatown in in New York and Toronto and San Francisco and if you go there 
Everybody there is Chinese. They eat Chinese food. They practice Chinese medicine. They read Chinese. There's Chinese signs. They read Chinese newspapers. But if they say, you know what now? This is also self-determination for China. We want our own China here. or This is part of China. That's called sedition. So, so what if it, there's a lot of Chinese people living there and all the culture is Chinese? That's not their land. And so, yeah, there are Palestinians here. I don't deny that, but it's not their sovereign right. There's a difference between national rights and civil rights. I don't deny that Palestinians deserve civil rights. By the way, that's exactly uh, what the, the League of Nations mandate said to the British, which is you're going to create a Jewish state, and it's not to deny the civil rights of the minorities living here, but the national rights are, of course, Jewish. So you give people civil rights, but you don't give them national rights. I deny, 100% deny, and you can quote me here later on, I deny that the Palestinians have a right for self-determination in this land. I do not accept that at all, yes, ever. I think, it's a, I think it's a created lie, and I will never accede to that. It's a simple, by the way, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a avowed Mizrahi, you should know that's a negotiation tactic. It's a trick. You know, like my family's starving. How could you offer me a hundred shekel for this trinket? Come on, man. Like this is, this is a fraudulent created narrative. And now it's, it's legitimate enough to take away your land. I don't think so. I think to put it back to the, 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 the actual framing of the debate. And I think, Mishai, what you painted, there are those on the other other side who say exactly the same the jewish claim to the land is illegitimate they start, and so i so to bring it back the peace and i was what's trying to do that question so two-state solution i think we've all agreed settlements do pose an obstacle to the two-state solution i guess my final question and, and probably so we've got time we can open up the floor otherwise we can then wrap up the debate um but my closing question to, I guess it's, it's more to you, Hen, given that you're arguing against the motion, or sorry, for the motion. So, is it possible to have peace without a two-state solution? So, what I'm simply is it is there a world? Can you envisage a world where actually there is the potential for peace and the settlements still remain, or is the only path to peace really the two-state solution in 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 your framing of the, the conflict? Um, I, I think that peace is about, um, um, you know, it's about, uh, it's about compromising. It's about finding, um, a solution that, um, both sides can, can agree on. We all agree that there's two sides here to the conflict. There's, um, there's our side and there's their side. And, uh, I would quote, um, uh, Aaron Kotler that he was talking about the Mizrahi Jewish refugees once, the, the legendary, uh, um, Canadian justice minister, minister. Um, and, and he said one. Let there, he said once that uh, let there be no mistake about it. Where there is no remembrance, there will, there is no truth. Where there is no truth, there will not be justice. Where there is no justice, there will not be reconciliation. And where there is no reconciliation, there will be no peace. And I think that if we want peace, peace is about justice. Peace is about reconciliation. Peace is about understanding that um, even if we are right and the truth is on our side, and I think the truth is the truth and history is 100% on our side. There's no, um, uh, there's no denying that we were there first, that we are indigenous, that we have the right for this, for self-determination, that we have the right for this land. All of this is true. Um, but, but from this place, we also need to be able to understand that there's a whole group of people that, um, that, are, that we can't deny their rights, um, um, their national rights, um, um, when we are uh, advocating for our, for our own rights. 
Um, it's just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work this way. And it's just not, um, it's exactly against the definition of justice. So is it fair to say that you're saying there isn't a world which, where there couldn't be peace without a two-state solution? And you base that on the argument for the, the right to self-determination for the Palestinian people. Is that a fair summary of what you So in your, in your worldview, that is the only. It's, it's a binary. There's either peace and a Palestinian state side by side with an Israeli state, or there won't be peace. Is that a fair? It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit lacking the nuance, but the nuance is, I think, <laughs> the two-state solution is, and everything is complicated. Of course, it's one of the, it's very complicated. Everything is complicated, but I think the two-state solution is the, is the best way to, uh, to give justice to both sides. I think that one-state solution that some people, some anti-Zionists are speaking about is horrific for us, and I think that one-state solution that Ishai is suggesting is also horrific for us. Um, maybe we'll be safe. Maybe we'll we'll live like masters of our land. Um, but it's not. But it's going to really harm the soul of this country. Um, and I know it. I know it from my from military service. I know it from my friends. Um, I see it around me. I know that this path is not a good path for uh, for the Jewish state. Okay, Joseph, uh, if I may. First thing. Uh, first thing, Chen. I wanted to say this to you uh, for for a while. Uh, you see that I, I, I was lucky enough to put up a background uh, for th- this uh, conversation. This background is, of course, you could spot in the in the rear there. That's the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron, spend, which also spend a lot of time there. That's right. Which also houses the tomb of Abraham, which is the father of the Arabs and the Jews. And it was actually, according to the Torah, uh, both Yitzchak, the next father of the Jewish people, and Ishmael who got together and buried their joint father, Abraham. Um, and according to our sources, Ishmael kind of repented and got closer to, to Isaac from some of the violence that he did in the past. I think that's what the Abraham Accords is really about. I think that we are. I think that the Middle East is walking away. I have a new term that I'm using. I looked it up. I think I created this term, but I found that somebody used it also in like 2011 one time. But here's my new term, post-jihadism. We're entering an era of post-jihadism, and I think that you're going to see more and more Arabs come out of jihadism. I think that Palestinianism is a form of jihadism, and there is no Palestinian map of living two states side by side. They're always calling for – they're saying that all of Israel is an occupation. I'm not saying the Palestinian people. Palestinian people are victims of the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, just like the Turkish people are today victims of Erdogan, just like the Iranian people are victims today of the Mullah regime. Today there are still bad actors that are suppressing people. Israel is not one of those actors. Israel is one of the best actors in the Middle East, the best actor in the Middle East. We are the only light of liberty in this region. And the way to shine that liberty – more is not to give up to the jihad and their lies and give up our land and create a terrorist state that suppresses the Arabs and attacks the Jews. Rather, hold on to our land, defeat jihadism, and allow post-jihadism to take root. And I, I, what, I, what I wanted to finish for you, Chen, is that you see those flags. Uh, the picture doesn't do it justice. It's actually we have one day a year where French Jews come en masse to Hebron, over 1,000, sometimes 1,200. They come every year. There's like a certain day in the year, and they come with flags, and they're the most Zionistic, pro-Israel group of people you ever see in your life. And as, as you could probably guess, when we say French Jews, that also means French Moroccans and Algerians and Tunisians because, you know, France uh, uh, had a great impact in those places. And so you have a lot of these. Th- this is the kind of French that they are. They're, they're really from North Africa, uh, like your family. 
uh, part of your family. And so uh, they have a clear and intrinsic understanding that this is our land and that we have to hold on to it and push back on the bad guys, the bad guys that are kicking them out of France today, the bad guys that kicked them out and, and kept them uh, in, in second-class status in, 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 in North Africa in those places. And today we have to be strong in our land and not give in to, to the jihad. These folks are, are like you. Uh, in, in, in where they're coming from and their mindset, but they've come to the conclusion that let's not go half measure. Let, let's not let's not make the mistake of of being of being kind of uh, the greatest sin an Israeli could do is to be a fire, which means a sucker. Don't be a sucker. Don't give your land to the jihad. Hold on to what's yours. You know it. It's yours historically. It's yours biblically. It's yours rationally. It's yours legally. It's yours in war. Don't let the jihad fool you into giving away more parts of it. Don't don't support the, these corrupt, thuggish leaders uh, that, that suppress them and shoot at us. Don't do it. Let's hold on to our land. Give decent people, post-jihadists, let's give them opportunities and, and, and let's have the Israel in the land of Israel. I, I just had a debate a few weeks ago when someone was throwing those accusations about Israel that said that Israel is horrific and our leaders are horrible. I had a debate with Ariel Gold, this uh, or, this woman with horrific ideas. And I'm not comparing her to you in any way, but I'm saying how when she said those things about Israel, I just felt so cringe and was like, why are you accusing my country in this and why are you accusing my people in, in, in this way? Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's tons of Muslim. And as you said, I know you don't, you don't mean, it's not about Muslims. You're talking about uh, jihadists and, and uh, this ideology, which is different. But there's a lot of people that, as you said, are fighting it. And, um, uh, and I'm, I, I'm hope, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful. I think that, uh, that peace is possible. And I do think that I'm still holding on to the two-state solution um, um, uh, hope. And I think that, you know, to be a realist is to believe in miracles in the Middle East. And, uh, I mean, look at Israel. Israel is made out of people that believed in miracles and believed in peace. Uh, and, yeah, and maybe you can say that, you know, you can mock me as a peacenik with uh, dreams of, uh, um, uh, that are unrealistic. But um, um, our whole country is, uh, is a, it's like it's unrealistic what, we, what we've accomplished. So um, I'm hoping that one day there will be a solution that will, um, that even a two-state solution will be able, will, will you know, you know, make sure that your rights are not being denied, and and the Palestinian rights are not being denied. That's that's what I'm about. I mean, I think I think we can go on with it forever, but um, but I think we both. I, I, I think Chen is right. Uh, Joe, do you wanna do you wanna? Oh, by the way, before I forget, Chen, I want to invite you for Shabbat Chayy Sarah. Uh, oh, wow. to Hebron. <laughs> now, you know, Shabbat Chay Sarah, like, there's nothing more powerful than reading the Torah uh, when it's open right in front of the tombs of patriarchs and matriarchs and seeing the story of Abraham purchasing that plot of land and standing in that plot of land. It's one of the most, like, it's just a spiritual awesome moment. It's like, there's the ancient Torah, there's the ancient, even more ancient story, there's the ancient building, and here I am, the, the child of Abraham. It's awesome. I'd love to invite you for Chay Sarah. Caveat, this year, because of the coronavirus, we are uh, not doing the big, big festival. So we're doing a lot of online stuff and other stuff. But, but next year, Bezrat Hashem, when, the, when this plague is over, I want to invite you. You'll be my special guest. I'll tour you around. You can, you can speak, whatever you want, okay? You're going to have a great time seeing, seeing Jews from all over the world, lovers of Israel, Knesset members, etc., coming to Hebron for, for that special Shabbat. Um, with that, uh, uh, maybe Joseph, I think uh, Chen and I, 
uh, have been on with you for now an hour and forty minutes with great pleasure. Do you want to? Do you want to? I'm, I'm throwing it out to you. Do you want to? You know, ask your audience for one question. No, or I think I think an hour. Well, thank you. Just thank you, Ishai, for the invitation. I, I really appreciate I, it. I, and, I, and I and I mean it. I can't wait to have you. We'll we'll we'll, we'll hook and, you and up. You're, be great. you're welcome to come to Tel Aviv. So when you come to Tel Aviv sometime, um, stop by and let me know. And what do you mean you. stop by? Are you offering me coffee or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than coffee. Coffee is nothing. I mean, you have cakes, whatever you want. Good, good. I'm feeling really left out, guys. Uh, but I'd like to, to thank you both. Joseph, I know you, you're, you're welcome in the and and you're welcome here on this side uh, of the pond anytime. God as long as you, there's fireworks, as long as there's fireworks, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'd like to thank you both for giving up an hour and 40 minutes of your time. I know that the two of you have had history on Twitter. And I think one of the really interesting things for me coming from this debate is that you can have two Jews with very different opinions, but there's still that aspect, there's still that unity. We, are, we still have the same intention. We all want what's best for our people and also what's best for our neighbors. We just have a different view of what's best of the, for, for those um, on the other side. So I'd like to thank you both. I'd like to encourage all of my audience to head over to Twitter and follow them, Yishai Fleischer and Ken Mazik. And I'd also encourage you, I'm pretty sure Ken's on. Are you both on Instagram? All of the, find them on all the social media. Make sure that you, you follow them. Um, and if you like videos like this, you can purchase our merch. Um, you can, um, um, sorry, Donate to us on Patreon and anything you can do to help support the channel goes a long way. So thank you. Um, really, really appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Chen. God bless you guys. Laila Tov. Toda Raba. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. So great to be with you. What an honor. What a pleasure. And I love you so much. And I just want to hear from you. So do me a favor. You know, pick up, pick up the, uh, the pen and whatever, the keyboard. Don't pick up the keyboard. Put your fingers on the keyboard. Fire off an email, yishai at yishaifleischer.com, yishai at uh, thelandofisrael.com. Easy enough. Write me a little email, just the tiniest little hashtag. It makes me feel like you're out there. I hear your heartbeat. You touch me. I touch you. We are we are connected. So, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to broadcast to you the truth, the, the, the beauty, the majesty of the story of the Jewish people's return to the land of Israel, and I want to hear from you and, the, and your connection to it wherever you are so um let me know if it was instructive that last half with hen mazik the last segment write me an email uh instructive that's the hashtag or mazik or debate whatever it is i want to hear from you and i want to bless you right now for a good voting if you're in the united states of america or an american citizen that's voting i want to really bless you with good voting it is crucial it is important and i was being ripped on on twitter by some, uh, by 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 a, a smart activist lady, but she's like, you know, what is this an idolatry? This that I said, come on, well, there's no idolatry here. It's just this is what's happening in the world, and we got to do our best to keep the world t- tilted in the right direction. And right now, in Yishai's opinion, it doesn't have to be your opinion. My opinion is, vote for President Trump. He stands strong against terrorism, strong against the nuclear Iran, for a strong Israel, for the Abraham Accords, for rights of Jewish people in Judea and Samaria. And I think that a president who wants to bless Israel will bless America as well. And I think that's the the right vote. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion about that as well. But definitely be part of the process. Engage and and be part of making this world a better place. Thank you to Rabbi Mike. Thank you to Hen Mazik and, uh, and the Israel Advocacy Network. Thank you to all the people that make this show happen. Ben Bresky, Tabitha, 
uh, and Moshe for getting it out. Thank you to you. Write me that email. And thank you to Hashem for giving us the strength to be alive in this time, the merit, the majesty, the power, the awesomeness, and you are awesome. If you've listened to this end of my show right now, you are awesome. You could just write me hashtag I am awesome because that's exactly what you are because you care about something so awesome and you're part of it. So that's it, my friends. Shabbat Shalom. Lots of love and lots of blessings from the land of blessings and Shalom. Join the Land of Israel Network Fellowship. Sign up today and join the revolution, inviting the world to learn Torah from Judea with Jeremy Gimpel and Ari Abramowitz. We may come up short on becoming the person we want to be, but that's not the point. Sukkot is telling us that happiness is progress. Wandering aimlessly through a meaningless life is a recipe for suffering. What could be worse than walking around the desert for absolutely nothing? But as long as we are walking toward the land of Israel, every step has purpose. For more information, visit thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship.